Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 10 of his podcast. How can I keep coming up with things to talk about? 10 episodes in. These things are like three hours long apiece. This is crazy. Well, let's keep on with it. Let's keep on going. Just going to stick to the seemingly now standard format of first talking about new and exciting interesting games that i've heard about and why i'm all a twitter all a buzz for them then we will do some q a jen will be joining again many interesting questions await i am sure and then finally i'll top it out with a recap of my most recent top 10 topic which right now i don't even remember what it is what was my top 10 topic Top 10 expansions? No, I did that a while ago. Top 10. Man. Top 10 Kickstarter games? Is that right? Yes. Top 10 Kickstarter games. We will revisit that. But first of all, let's talk about new and exciting upcoming games right after this. Okay, let's talk some games. Cool, new, exciting games. These are, there's a lot of really good stuff in here. I'm very, very excited. Let's jump right into it, starting with Airlines. This is going to be designer Eli Goldstein's latest game from his self-publishing Golden Egg Games. And i got to say, I mean, I'm really, really keen on the designs that Elod comes up with. They're always very fresh, very interesting. And what's, and what's really kind of cool, the previous game of his we played, Primetime, was a crazy, heavy, heavy, heavy network programming simulation, te- television network programming, you know, coming up with schedules and developing TV shows and getting the right actors and all that stuff. That was a very, very cool game. Uh, but it's funny. I, you know, at the time I said, wow, this is heavy. And Eli had contacted me and said, oh, it's not so heavy. And then I posted when I heard about airlines, oh, wow, it's going to be his next game. It's going to be a big, heavy game. And he posted again, oh, Richard, it's not so heavy. Oh, come on, Eli, it's heavy. Embrace it! You know you're making these big, heavy, cool games. And so I'm excited to see what he does interesting or different than what might be the standard treatment of you know another business economic simulation. So, first up, airlines. Moving on, next up, Dice Stars. And this is from Bruno Cathala and uh, Ludovic Malblanc. You know, it's another one of their team-ups. They generally put together some very, very cool stuff when these two guys get together. And this looks cool. It's a dice rolling game where players are take on the role of shooting stars. Literally, you know, stars flying through the cosmos, uh, represented by the dice that we roll. That's actually really cool. Now, to be honest, it's probably a fairly abstract game, and some people might ask, well, why am I interested? Because I often go on about how Jen and I are not interested in pure abstracts. And that's true. We are not interested in pure abstracts. But if you take just even the slightest hint of theme and put it on top of it, I mean, 
Hanabi has enough theme for us, even though the theme doesn't even make sense in Hanabi. We still appreciate the fact that it's there, and that elevates it for us above and beyond you know, what the game otherwise might be. I expect the same thing will be true for Dice Stars, and while we really know nothing about the gameplay right now, I mean, the, the pedigree of Bruno Cathal and Ludovic Malblanc, it is definitely something to pay attention to. So that's Dice Stars. And then next up, Oceanos. And this is the latest card drafting game from Anton Bauza. And supposedly, this creates a new twist on card drafting. And why is that a big deal? Because Anton Bauza's last card drafting game was Seven Wonders, which is arguably the best card drafting game of all time. So if Anton is now going back to that rich, rich well of gameplay design and doing something new and interesting, well, that is going to be something very, very worthwhile seeking out. And it's from Publisher Yellow, so you know it's going to be absolutely gorgeous. It apparently has to do with deep-sea underwater exploration in kind of like a Jules Verne-esque, you know, steamworks submarine type thing. Don't know anything about it, but... It's almost a guaranteed must-have, just because it's kind of the heir apparent to Seven Wonders. That's a big deal. But that's not all. Next, we have The Great Chariot Race, which is from designer Matt Leacock. And, man, I really have to eat my words now, as I've been going on for years about, Matt, Matt, please stop giving us yet another cooperative game in the vein of Pandemic. Yes, you did Pandemic. It's awesome. Yes, Forbidden Desert is awesome. Yes, Thunderbirds. You know, these are cool, but give us something new. And so last month, I mentioned Nitwit, which is, you know, a crazy off-the-wall word party game all about Venn diagrams and yarn. And now this month, we discover he's also putting out the Great Chariot Race. And unfortunately, that's all we know. You know, Ben-Hur, the board game? One can only hope. But I'm excited because it's a competitive game. He's getting away. He's, he's branching out. Whatever it is, it's definitely going to be worth checking out. So cannot wait to find out something, anything, about the Great Chariot Race. Then we've got Golden Sails. Now, this is interesting. This is the follow-up to Viceroy from designer Yuri uh, Zuravlev. Sorry, Yuri, I'm not quite sure how to say your name. But Viceroy was this amazing design that just came out of nowhere and you know caught everybody by surprise, was a big, big hit. And so I'm not sure, but I get the impression this is not really a direct sequel to that game, but it is set in the same fantasy universe. This is kind of like a uh, oh a Silk Road mercantile simulation as you're sailing around everywhere with your golden sailing vessel going to twelve different ports and you know picking up goods and then del- and you know taking them to other ports to sell them for big profits. So yeah, maybe that doesn't sound immediately that interesting, but from the designer of Viceroy in another interesting fantasy universe where in addition to collecting cloves and peppers and spices, you're collecting spells and unicorns and whatnot. So I think that could be very, very cool. I suspect the art will be absolutely gorgeous, so I'm really interested in the golden sails. Then, moving on, we have Bohemian Village from designer Reiner Stockhausen and Here's the dealio. This is Reiner Stockhausen was the designer of Orléans, which, ah, gosh, is it in my top 20 now? After the expansion for Orléans came out, I, that really jumped up considerably high. I think it's in my top 30 of all time. And, you know, and before that, Reiner had also done Siberia, which is, you know, in several other games. So Reiner Stockhausen is this really rock solid Euro designer that's really flying under the radar. And so Bohemian Village is this big new Euro that he's bringing out this year. And so, just the fact 
that he's working on it gets my attention because Orléans is so amazing. But then on top of that, it's a tactical dice rolling game. And what that means, what I hope that means is another dice drafting game because last year started the year of like this big cavalcade of dice drafting games, which I've absolutely loved. And I'm hoping for more and more and more. So hope, fingers crossed, that's what Bohemian Villages is. But what I'm most excited about is this could be the Euro game that I've been waiting for forever where players take on different roles inside the same village and have this kind of interconnected synergy because apparently one player is a, a merchant another player is an innkeeper another player is a factory owner another player is the mayor so they all have different you know even though it's a competitive game they all have their own avenues of of a uh, victory point generation they have to pursue using dice drafting from maybe from designer reiner stockhausen that sounds amazeballs that is a lot of cool um, feathers in its cap, and I'm really, really excited to find out more about Bohemian Villages. Then we've got COGS, C-O-G-S, which I'm not quite sure what the acronym is for, but it is Steve Finn's latest cool filler game. I mean, actually, I'm not sure if this one's a filler. I haven't read about that yet because Foragers wasn't really quite so much of a filler. That was kind of his first bigger, broader game. And maybe this is another one. Maybe it's a filler. I'm not quite sure. But here's what's cool. It's a worker placement game set in a steampunk universe crossed with crossword puzzles. Apparently, you're using your workers to collect letters. And if you get the right letters, to spell out the names of resources like gear or cog or gizmo, if you can spell out these words, you actually collect them so that you can actually build whatever the clockwork contraptions you're making are. So worker placement crossed with a word game crossword type thing sounds very, very cool, very interesting, very different. So I'm very much excited about cogs. Then we've got Star Trek Panic, and oh my goodness... It's from the designer of Castle Panic. I guess the same basic ideas and gameplay of Castle Panic, but set in the Star Trek, the original series. The William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, you know, TOS. Uh, not, not the reboot, not next gen. So my absolute favorite Star Trek of all time in a, uh, you know, a, a tower defense game where the Enterprise is in the center of the table and the Romulans and the Klingons are all coming in and players are taking on different roles, whether they're the engineer or the navigator or whatnot, all trying to save the Enterprise. Oh my gosh, that looks, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I guess in the center of the board, the Enterprise itself is a little cardboard based 3D model of the Enterprise that we're trying to protect. That's must have. I only hope that the design, I'm sure, you know, the design of Castle Panic is great. It's really, really nice. It's just that Castle Panic is too easy. And I'm hoping that this game provides a little bit more challenge because Jen and I could never really get into Castle Panic as much as we want to. But I'm super stoked about this and cannot wait to see more about Star Trek Panic. Then we've got the Great Western Trail from designer Alex Fister, who continues his... I mean, this guy has arrived, constantly putting out new, interesting Euros. This one's going to be co-published by Eggerspiele and Stronghold Games, and these guys have good taste. He is a good designer. What's it about? Herding cattle in Texas. That's all I know. Uh, apparently, it's going to be um, you know the medium to heavyweight style game. His last one was Mombasa. That was a fantastic game. So this should be a very very interesting new title from him as well. Then we've got Terraforming Mars, where players are working over multiple generations. This is a game that takes place over hundreds of years as mankind actually strives to 
terraform Mars to make it a habitable planet. And, you know, it uses the standard, I've got a handful of cards, I want to play this one, so I have to get rid of other ones. That's always a good mechanism that works. And so, right off the bat, I'm interested in the subject matter, I'm interested in the scope and scale, and I'm interested in the gameplay. And then on top of all that, Paolo, the, a guy who I very much respect, who does all the corrections on my videos, he says... It's a must-watch, a must-see. So I don't know what he knows, but he's excited about it, so I'm excited about Terraforming Mars. Then we've got a nice little expansion, Epic Resort, Villain's Vacation. I've already done a run-through for Epic Resort, which was an excellent game. Gorgeous deck builder with a lot of really cool, interesting, out-of-the-box gameplay mechanisms all mushed together in this really oddball game. And really, the only thing the base game is missing is more content. It's one of those deck builders that just can't quite stand on its own. It needs more. And now, more is coming. More cards, more functions, more abilities. Can't wait for Epic Resort Villain Vacation. Then we've got another expansion, Catacombs and Castles, which is interesting. It's an expansion, and it's also a standalone game for Catacombs. Now, Jen and I have done a run-through for that. It's an excellent, wonderful, dungeon-crawling, disc-flicking game. Uh, it had a big, gorgeous reprint last year, beautiful art, tons of fun, and it's a big, sprawling game that takes a long time to play, has a, a fair level of complexity to it. And so what they're doing is they're releasing a standalone, I guess you could consider it a sequel called Catacombs and Castles, where instead of dungeon crawling, you're now both player, one player is defending a castle and the other player is attacking it, so that's the board. But, so it, it stands alone as a more head-to-head -head as opposed to multiple players going up against a dungeon master, you know, many against one. This is a head-to-head -head game with the attacker and the defender trying to take out this castle. But all the pieces are compatible with the original game. So it functions in an expansion, gives you new environments to fight in, new characters to fight with, but it also is a standalone game that my understanding is kind of cuts down the play length, which is probably a good thing. So that should be very cool too. Catacombs and Castles. And then another expansion for the Grizzled called At Your Orders. And now I have to admit, I have yet to play the Grizzled, but I'm really excited to. I love the idea of this very, I guess, harrowing cooperative experience set in the trenches of World War I, but it's not about war. It's more about camaraderie as these soldiers work together to raise each other's morale and, um, you know, and, and try to overcome hardship. I mean, I love that focus as to the more standard traditional focus of, hey, how many people can we kill? How much death? And, you know, this is more about surviving the horrors of war rather than perpetrating them. So I'm instantly intrigued. And, you know, I've heard a lot about the Grizzled is an amazing game, but it isn't really that that well-designed as a two-player game. So the fact that they are now releasing an expansion with new two-player-specific rules is very, very exciting. And now I'm even more interested in seeking out the Grizzled because of its expansion at your orders. Then, uh, wow, what do you know? Another expansion. And uh, this is for time stories. I mean, we already have heard about um, the uh, the time tour, uh, you know, fantasy adventure that is already out now. It's out in Europe, and it'll be coming out in America soon. And then after that, there's going to be an ancient Egypt of Curse of the Pharaoh one. But a new one's been announced called Endurance, and uh, this is very very cool. Uh, it's designed by Croc, who is the designer of Claustrophobia, which was an awesome dungeon crawl. And apparently, this is set. Oh, um, I think in 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 the early 1900s you know just after the turn of the century in an arctic research facility which sounds very very cool that is a very 
unusual um, setting to have. So, you know, what's it going to be? I don't know, but Time Stories is amazing. And the mean, the reason I talk about this more than anything else is, fingers crossed. I mean, I understand, originally Time Stories was never supposed to be a two-player game. And they just pigeonholed some two-player rules in last minute. And, you know, they had already developed the first two expansions before the game had even come out. So I, mean, I know there's been a big hue and cry, certainly from me and from a lot of other people, give us better two-player rules, please, please, please. Endurance, I think, is the first expansion where there's a chance that they might have actually rethought their two-player stance and maybe come up with some better ones. Fingers crossed for Time Stories Expedition Endurance. Then, oh, this is really cool. Mask of Anubis. And this is a virtual reality game where what you do is the game comes with this cardboard set of glasses or, you know, not glasses. What you do is you take your smartphone, you install an app on it that is a virtual reality simulation. You build this little cardboard sunglasses thing and you slip your smartphone into it and then you put it on like glasses. And so you are looking from a first person's perspective at a three dimensional maze. And one player gets to put on the glasses, which you know are styled after kind of like an Egyptian mask of Anubis that you're putting on, and suddenly they don't see the world, they just see this virtual world. And they have to look around, you know, and it uses the uh, you know the gyroscopic features of of an iPhone to be as you turn your head, you look around and you see this three-dimensional space you're in, like lawnmower man, like virtual reality. And the other players who can't see, they've got all these puzzle pieces, and you are trying to describe to them what you can see and and then they use the puzzle pieces to build a map so that all together, everybody working together, can find a way out of this, this catacombs, this tomb. And that's awesome. That is so amazingly cool. This idea of one player having to communicate what they see to everybody else, them actually using you know puzzle pieces to... I, I can't wait. I am super-duper stoked for this. This sounds so amazing. Mask of Anubis. And then the last one I'm going to talk about is called Mystic Veil vale from... Um, um, AEG, and this is very, very cool. It's a deck builder, yeah, but there's a lot of deck builders. What's special about this one? Not only are you deck building, you're card building. Because this game comes with a bunch of card sleeves that are very, very special in that you can take these little mini cards, slip like... I think it's two or three of these little mini cards into one card sleeve and make a special customized card. And then you're deck building with cards that you have customized and built. There's actually pictures of it on Board Game Geek of what it looks like. I might not be doing the best to describe it, but it looks phenomenal. Such a cool, exciting idea of crafting your own cards and then deck building on top of that. Mystic Veil sounds like it's going to be really, really awesome, and I cannot wait to check it out. And that, folks, is the new games of interest I have discovered in the last 30 days. Phew. Okay, and now, after a brief break, Jen's going to be joining me for some big, big Q&A. Hold on. Okay, everybody, time for Q&A, questions and answers. Once again, joined by my lovely wife, Jennifer Ham. Say hi, honey pie. Hello, everybody, and mm. honey pie. There we go. Yes, I was afraid you weren't going to say hi, honey pie. Hi, honey pie. Okay, folks, looks like uh, in the old Q&A folder in Outlook, I've got about a dozen questions or so, give or take. And once again, haven't really done that much in the way of prep which may bite me in the butt later, but what the heck, let's go for it. Um, oldest question came in on February 4th from Ryan. Hi, Jim. 
So this is a question for Jen, actually. Oh, that's good. That's a nice start. Hi, Jen. I see, after watching motion. Okay, Ryan Honeypie has a question about Freedom of the Underground Railroad. He would like to know, he'd like to get your thoughts on whether you thought it was a good game, whether the game ended up too much for you thematically, and whether you feel that games should carry the weight of, you know, like, you know, this conference is a big, weighty subject, you yeah. know, slavery in America if it maybe removes some fun from the proceeding. And now, um, for a little bit of backstory here, Ryan's referring to the fact that I did a run-through of Freedom of the Underground Railroad, gosh, must be a couple of years ago now. And at the time when I did the run-through, I had not played it with Jen at that point. I'd only played it with a friend of mine, uh, David, who was actually the co-designer of And Then We Held Hands. And so I most of my run-through was really focused on my responses and what I thought Jen's response would be. Um, and I think I'd have to go back and look. I bet you I probably at that point I said, you know what, um, I'll do a follow-up video. And then I promptly never did. <laughs> so Ryan is demanding answers. All righty. It's been a few years. Oh, first of all, I will answer. We did ultimately trade it away. And in large part, because uh, it is, it is heavy duty material. And I remember at the time you basically said, well, yeah, yeah, this is a good game, but I don't know that I ever want to play it when I could just play Pandemic and not have to be bummed out. Or mm. I, I, that's not what you said, or that's how you said it. But I remember you saying, why would I play this instead of Pandemic? Mm. And I mean, I mentioned this because it's been a couple of years. We've played several hundred games between now and then. Yeah. And honey, I, do you even remember this game, actually, quite frankly? I do sort of remember it. Okay. Barely, but probably more because I've actually made markers to go with it. Um, is this Oh, right, request? yes. Yeah, you made uh, Slave Catcher markers, right? Well, yeah, the 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 yes. The the villains, the villain pieces. Who? Why'd you make those? I, it was somebody associated with the game. Actually, I can't remember if it was a designer or somebody who was involved with the production. Oh, oh, wanted. so he just wanted a yeah. special set for himself. Yeah, that's cool. Um, anyway, so well, so you remember making the pieces for the game? Do well, you remember the game itself? And do you remember anything about its impact on you? Um, I do remember the game because, of course, I had to go back and look at it mm-hmm. when I made the markers. Yeah. So. Um, as far as the gameplay, I remember it being, you know, a, a good game. I remember, us, you know, we finished it and had a lot of talk about the game and the subject matter while we were playing, which actually I think is, is the point of playing games. It's not necessarily who wins and who loses. It's sort of the journey that you go on as you're playing together. Okay. And so to have something that has a fairly meaty subject as you're playing actually does add something to the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that we talked a lot about, you know, slavery and, and that part of American history while we were playing. Um, I think my response was something along the lines of, yeah, that was a good game, and I'm really glad we played it. I'm not sure it's something I'd want to play, say, on a weekly basis, <laughs> because while the gameplay was good, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I would want to address that subject, say, on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is. It's, it's a bit horrifying, really. Well, see, it's and- interesting. The thing about that game, and I talked about this in the final thoughts for it, the interesting thing about its design was that the theme and the gameplay were very closely intertwined, but it was presented in such a way that you could, if you wanted to, pretty much treat the game as a, as a solely abstract, almost go-like puzzle of pieces moving around on the board. Because 
every card that you got, you know, was based on historical people and historical events and whatnot, but they all had flavor text, if I recall correctly, in very, very small font. And if you want to, you could just pretty much ignore that and say, oh yeah, there's a picture, but really, this is a card that lets me move these three pieces here. And so if you wanted to, if the game, if you did find it to be too overbearing or too heavy, then you could play it. You could ignore that and play it almost as an abstract. And I mentioned that. I remember talking to you about that at the time because I'd already mentioned it. And, and you know, and that was an issue for it as well because you didn't want to, and neither of us do. We tend to get very deeply enmeshed in the theme of the game. Yeah. And that's what, it, that's what the pandemic thing was, that you... And I, I don't disagree. You rightfully said, well, you do want to get involved in the theme of the game. And you would rather, you, if you're going to play some heroic character, you'd rather play some fictional heroic character saving the world from disease. That's how Pandemic came into it, rather than some real world hero. And again, it's, 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 it's not to be disparaging about the subject matter, but it's just, it's heavy subject matter. And for us to be able to play it on a regular basis, we would have to treat it as an abstract game. And the reality is neither of us are particularly interested in abstract games. I mean, we don't play... We would not purposely get de-theme a game. <laughs> yeah. So, and I do think that, I mean, ultimately, to be able to turn that into a replayable game, I mean, it would just be too heavy. You can't, you, you can't watch, you know, 12 Years a Slave every week. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe one should, but I mean, it, 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 can, it can just be too much. And so the way that game works is, is fine if you're looking for an abstract puzzle game where maybe the first few times you play it, you really soak in the rich, deep history and the, and the meaning and the, the bravery and the heroism and all that. But, you know, it's just too much. And so and that's what we decided. And the other thing you have to bear in mind, I whenever it comes to pretty much any game in terms of determining whether we're going to keep it or not, I am always looking for any excuse to get rid of any game, even if it's a minor one, because we just simply, we're not normal people. We're bringing in, <laughs> you know, we're bringing in like 200 games a year. We might be normal people, but we're not normal gamers. We are not, yes. We are in an, we are in an abnormal situation. And so often I will get rid of games for the smallest issue just because I don't have room. We don't have room to keep all these games. I've yeah. said, honey, we could get more shelves. And she said, no. No, no, we, we like to use the shelves as the actual limiter of our game. Collection. Exactly, yeah. The big shelf you see in the background of my run-throughs is the hard limit. Now, that's actually not true because we've got about two closets full mm. of games. But those at least are games that we have agreed upon, we'll try to find new homes for. Um, or they're new ones that haven't yeah. been played yet. Yes, well, and that too. So, um, But anyway, so that's kind of the, the what went into freedom. But So to answer Ryan's question, you, do you think that games should scrimp on history. I mean, no. here's the thing. If that, you know, Freedom of the Underground Railroad could have been rethemed to be some kind of, I don't know, some kind of uh, save indigenous, this could be rethemed to Avatar. And we're trying to save mm. the indigenous creatures on Avatar from global industrial military complexy type stuff. And then it would be, oh, well, this is kind of a, this is brave heroism kind of thing, but it's not heavy. It's not like, you know, yeah. it's, it's no more heavy than pandemic. It could have been rethemed that way well, you know, and kept the, you know, the, the subject matter. Do you think that would have been right? So that we could have enjoyed the game both from a thematic point of view, oh yeah, we're on a foreign, we're, we're saving endangered alien animals on an alien planet from evil hunters and or whatever, and um, and then it wouldn't have all the heavy weight. Should they have done that, or should they have tackled the subject head on like they did? Well, that is really interesting because um, 
I've thought about visiting Auschwitz. Yes. In Germany and, you know, some other things, because we'd like to do a bit more traveling around in that area. Mm-hmm. And the question comes up, well, would we go? And I think the answer is yes, absolutely, we would go and we would absorb. So the next time we go to New York, we're going to the 9-11 Memorial Museum is what you're saying. If I get to New York again, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We, when we were in so New that's York. really interesting. In the past, we've had opportunities to go to, oh, look, here's no. the Jewish Holocaust oh. Museum in whatever city it is. And we're like, oh, yeah, I probably should, but oh, I don't remember hard. anywhere that we've been where we have had something like that that we said no to. Okay. You tell me one place we've been to. We've been to a lot of places. That, that has had something like that that we have said no to. Well, pr- well but most cities in Europe have something akin to that. And it's on the list of, hey, here's things you could do in the city. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not, yeah, you're saying it's no, not the equivalent not of, of touring like, Auschwitz or yeah. something like that. No, we've but, never been anywhere like that. Yes. Like, for example, we'll be going to Amsterdam in June. Mm-hmm. And we will be going, I'm sure, to Anne Frank's house. Okay. So, yes. All right. But, I mean, to me, that is the first major place that we will go to that has a major historical site that is going to be uncomfortable, but yet I think you kind of owe it to yourself to go see. Okay. And so, and you feel the same way about a game? You think they were right? Yes, I do. Because we owed it to ourselves to play that. that. Yeah. You experience that. You think about it. You talk about it and all of that. On the other hand, if we lived in Amsterdam, would I be going to Anne Frank's house every week? I don't think I would. Mm -hmm. But would I take visitors there? Mm -hmm. Sure. So if we had a a gaming group or we had people coming, you know, by or whatever, and this was a passion, would we keep it? Of course we would. Okay. All right then. So question number one. Wow. Done and dusted. Diggity done. Let's see if we can get even more heavy. And by the way, when we were in New York, the 911 memorial wasn't. No, of course not. No, you haven't been there since... Then we, yeah. No, we went. No, actually, that's not true. When I was working with Marvel, remember we did have that surprise. Oh, you know, because you weren't. You know, yes, I was thinking about our, our driving trip that we went. We yeah. actually no, drove that, into New I mean, York the, City. The, My the, God, don't yeah. do that. Yeah. Don't ever do that. Don't ever drive into New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> absolutely yeah. crazy and rich. Yeah. Um, no, that is true. We were so it must have been finished by then because that was what? No, five no, no, years no, no. Ago? We six years ago. Oh, I don't remember. Um, well, you know, the, the Twin Towers had fallen, but no, I mean, I think it, at that point, everything was still mired in the, you know, the, the, the God awful, it took years and years and years to deal with all the building permits and all the conflicting companies and whatnot. I, I you know, the memorial is there now and I am sure it's a wonderful and very powerful and evocative thing. But at the time, um, ground zero was just a big gigantic hole. Yeah. And if I recall, actually, I think we did. We did actually go see it, now that I remember. And we couldn't see anything because there were just basically fences. I remember Scaffolding and... and no, it, no, it was literally no? just a big, gigantic hole. And there were fences and you couldn't see anything. Because okay. well, this clearly. was before there was any kind of serious construction that had happened at all. And, um, and then we've been to New York since... That must have been like maybe five years ago, but that was a very spur of the moment thing. We weren't really planning, uh, and I am, and I had to go there for work, and Jen happened to be in Seattle with me, and so it was like a very lucky thing where we both happened to go to New York, and I spent the days working at the Marvel offices, and I don't know what you did, and we just we saw a handful <laughs> of things, but um, yeah, yeah it didn't to... make the list then. But I, I, again, I don't, at that point, I don't think it was open for business either. But you're saying you would not be adverse to it. No, I think if we were back in New York City, we would go. Okay. Next question 
from Robert. Let's see. Robert has numbered his questions one to four. Thank you, Robert. That makes it easier to skim. Uh, as promised, here are the questions. Ah, regard. Okay. Number one, <laughs> can you tell us more about your reckless driving report? Yes, I can. Okay. Here's the dealio. I was, we were, I was at the University of Washington where Jen and I met. I was a student there. And I, for my first freshman year, I had a roommate who was a guy I knew from high school, Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson was a wonderful guy, big heart, incredibly smart, uh, super nerd, uber nerd. I mean, heck, so was I. We were both uber nerds. And, um, you know, we were, we were roommates at, in the dorm in college. And, uh, you know, I, I had met Jen in college. We started dating. Eventually, Jen and I moved in together. And I kind of, you know, I, I wasn't keeping up with Chris anymore, you know, because, you know, Jen was the center of my life. And, but I knew Chris had a date. And, um, you know, and, and so, oh, cool. Okay, we're going to do a double date. I mean, me and Jen will go and Chris and Nah. Yeah. NGA. <gasps> nah. Remember Nah? Yeah. yeah. He uh, it, it was going to be, if I recall correctly, it was Chris's first date with Nah. Oh. And that was a big deal for him because Chris is a nerd. I mean, he doesn't necessarily get a lot of dates. Neither did I. I mean, um, I got very lucky. So did Chris. Is that rubbing? I'm just looking at your microphone rubbing. I have no idea. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully, I'm sorry if it's been rubbing, everybody. Um, so, Chris uh, and Jen and me and Nah, who is a nice lady of Vietnamese descent, we're going to have a double date. What Probably was going it? to Ethiopian. No, we were not. Oh. We were going to go see the Michael Douglas film, Black Rain, I remember. Wow. Because I we had, I think I had gotten advanced pre, preview tickets or something like that. And so it was really important to me. But we lived, at that point, we were living up. In Lake City. In Lake City. Uh, so we weren't on campus anymore. Not River City. Uh, yeah. And so, and that was when I was at Nintendo and I, you know, I got off every day at one in the afternoon. And so I got home and I don't remember why, but I don't know, somehow I lost track of time <clears throat> and I realized, oh crap, I'm late. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. No time to say hello, goodbye. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. <laughs> and so I realized I had to drive from Lake City down to the university district to pick up Chris, pick up Naw, and then you were still working downtown Seattle yeah. at that point. Yeah. And we were going to pick you up and then go, I think it was probably the Queen Anne Theater or something like that. Yeah. To see Black Rain, um, and I, cause I, I was under so much pressure because it was Chris's first date. I want everything to go right. I want to talk Chris up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm running late. I'm terrified, and I will be the first to admit that in my younger days. I was perhaps not the wisest driver on the road. I was young and dumb, and the other thing that rhymes, because it's a family show, and uh, I was... I would not say I was a reckless driver to the point of the legal definition of reckless driving, but I certainly sped, and I took chances, mm. and if I wasn't driving, I'm sure people who was riding might say, wow, he's a little bit... Okay, you can calm down a little bit. We can slow down a little bit. And, you know, I don't know if Jen would like to comment on my driving practices in my early 20s. I think I've read since then that men, male brains don't actually fully mature until about 21, 22. Uh-huh. And you were 20. Yes. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> I was under a lot of pressure. I was already predisposed to driving fast and, you know, and like pushing the limit. And so I'm driving down Lake City Way. Way, you know, south towards University of Washington. This is a this is a relatively major street. It's uh, two four lanes, ways, for, yeah. for, for, you know, not quite a highway, but you know, two lanes, four in in both directions. And I am driving lane. fast. I'll make no mistake because I'm late. I'm feeling the pressure and the center lane. And, you know, and, oh, and then there's like the fifth. There's a center lane, a passing lane, and here's the deal. 
It was heavy traffic for no good reason at all. I'm really, really scared. And I'm like, I mean, I'm, I, I used to do this a lot. I used to shout. I, I used to be really, I mean, <laughs> remember the rabbit? The, yeah. uh, the driver, the, the steering wheel was actually bent on the top because sometimes I would just get so, get out of my way. I would literally punch the um, quite violently, quite hard. But you the, never did the this steering wheel I was in the car. So that it was actually permanently bent a little bit. I don't know if you ever noticed that. No. But anyway. And he never did that when I was in the car. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, when I was, you know, I got, I got my road rage out of the way when Jen wasn't there. So I'm, I'm feeling the road rage because there's a couple of cars that are just, you know, this is a, this is a 30 or 40 mile an hour road and they're just totting along at 15 miles an hour. And I'm get the freaking, you know, just going crazy. And so we're heading South. It's a two lane road. There is the center lane. That center lane is only for making left turns when you're heading, you know, at all that. And I, Ugh! And I just jumped out and I passed them in that center lane in about, I don't know, it didn't even take me three seconds because they were, they, were, they were driving criminally slowly. It was <laughs> ridiculous. And so then I kept on going. And yeah, and I, I'm, I'm running yellows. I mean, I'm guilty, guilty as charged. I was a young, stupid driver, but um, I was still very much in control. I was a very good driver. Um, of course, every young man thinks that they were. So anyway, I'm driving, driving, driving. Finally, past all that crap, I've uh, got a straight line. I know I'm going to be able to make it on time. There's this road that kind of merges with the road. I'm still heading south. And there's, there's a road that where they come down a hill, and they have to make a sharp, like, past 90 degree, like, 120 degree right turn to merge into the road that I'm heading south on. That's from uh, Northgate Mall. Yeah, the road from Northgate Mall coming down onto Lake City Way for people who live in Seattle and know it. It comes down a relatively steep thing. They've got to make a sharp right turn over 120 degrees, and they have to yield to oncoming traffic. Of course they Now, do. I'm driving. I'm finally seeing. I'm, I punched through. Yes, I did the passing thing. That was totally wrong. I was totally in the wrong. I totally agree with that. But I'm coming along, and now I can make it. I see a car coming down this road. I know that they're in the left lane. They're going to turn into, but I know they have to, well, no, I'm sorry. They were in the right lane. I know they're going to merge in with me. Um, but I know they have to yield to me. And so, okay, fine. I'm just going to keep on going. No problem. They're going to stop. They're going to yield. They don't, they just blow right through, pull right out in front of me. There's nothing I can do. And I slam into them. They were, for that brief moment, at that point, I wasn't speeding. I wasn't, I mean, I, 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 okay, I'm not saying I was perfect, but I wasn't speeding at that point. There was nothing I could have done. They pulled directly in front of me. If, um, I'm sure if you looked at the, the, the skid marks from where I hit the brakes, they just pulled right into me, didn't care. You know, they were totally in the wrong. So, and I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, but so it's, it's a fender bender. Great. We pull off to the side. And not three minutes later, some off duty cop comes up, pulls in, gets out of the car. You know, he, he, he's in plain clothes. He's in his own personal car. He comes up to me and he is furious. He is like, you know, bristling, angry. He said, you give me your keys now. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And I, I don't even know. Yeah, and he never actually shows me. I mean, I just kind of took it on faith because, I mean, at this point, I'm in, I'm in a bit of shock because half of me is like, oh, crap, I'm going to miss Chris's date. Oh, he's going to miss his date. Ah! 
this is his big chance to and you know eventually Chris and Nan did get married yes. so <laughs> unfortunately I didn't ruin his life or anything like that but I'm stressing <laughs> about that I'm stressing about this is the first accident I've ever had really um, actually that's not true I did have an accident in high school as well but this is the first accident I've had in years And but, I'm, but I'm, one thing I'm not thinking is this was not my fault this is their fault I'm trying to be polite and I'm like oh I don't, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm coming down from the adrenaline you know if, if you're ever in an accident you know you've got that adrenaline and all that and you're worried about what's going to do your all this stuff so this guy comes up he demands my keys i give them to him i'm not even thinking twice about it because I'm, I'm just a 20 year old kid and by the way i don't see those keys again for two or three two or two or three weeks maybe a month those keys just disappear from the face of the earth those weren't just our car keys those were our yeah. apartment keys because the guy just takes them and he takes control and said i was following you and you are an asshole Sorry, and you're <laughs> actually that's not what he said. He said much worse. I mean, he was very abusive to me, and um, your license should be revoked. And um, eventually, a cop showed up, and this undercover, this off-duty cop, basically filled out the report. And uh, and that was it. You know, and, and you know, and everybody was left, and I had to get my car towed. And this was before anybody had cell phones, so it's not like I could call or tell anybody. Jen's waiting. Chris is waiting. Nas waiting. I've let everybody down. I'm very disappointed. I can't tell anybody because cell phones don't exist. Or uh, or at that point, we didn't have a brick phone. Uh, we did eventually get one, but we didn't have one yeah. at the time. And so eventually, I can call um, and get the car towed and all that. Eventually, days later, I look at what this report says, and it's a total fabrication. It's just full of lies. And, um, you know, these are lies that are demonstrably provable as lies. He said I was blatantly running red lights, that he followed me. Even though I was running red lights, somehow he continued to follow me without running those same red lights himself. Mm. He listed all these things I did not do. He did list the thing I did do. And, again, I will cop to this. I was um, uh, very bad that I, I passed in a in a left-turn lane. I I was awful, but I was running yellows. I was not running blatant reds. He wrote that um, there were senior citizens I was missing by inches. All this stuff that was demonstrably false because he couldn't have seen it unless he was also running these red lights. And then when you get to the report itself where it shows, you know, know, indicate the areas on the car uh, indicated, he said that the guy I hit was at a red light and I just ran into him. He was at the red light, and I just didn't stop. I ran right into him. That was demonstrably false. The guy was at fault. He was supposed to merge in. He didn't. He just ran, pulled right into me. So if you actually look at the damage of the cars, I hit him on the passenger side in the rear. The the undercover, not the undercover, the off-duty cop said I hit him on. I'm sorry, I hit him on the driver's side because he pulled out in front of me. The cop reported on the report that I hit him on the passenger side, which is impossible. It's not what I did, but it's what I would have had to do if the off-duty cop story was correct. But the off-duty cop just had it in for me. He hated my guts. So basically, he shellacked me. He completely slammed and slandered me. And now I'm stuck with this reckless driving. So what do I do? I try... I try to get my name cleared because, you know, I forget what's below reckless driving. What, honey pie? I'm it, just worried that your shirt is rubbing that microphone. I, no, uh, Sorry. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I was, I was, uh, 
Uh, still, I get worked up. This is like 20 years, over 20 years ago. Um, so I go to my public, I get a public defender assigned to me because I want to fight this. Because look, I can prove everything that's in this report is false. There, you know, let's go down. Let's, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody at some point, this is before anybody had a camera phone, so you couldn't take pictures. But you, you uh, let's look at the repair records. I did not hit them on this side. I hit them on this side. I, um, you know, I mean, the, the simple logic of what he's claiming, I, I, I should get off whatever's below reckless. There's, because reckless is an actual felony. Reckless driving is a felony. There's one below that. I, at this point, I can't remember what it is, but I want to get myself downgraded because reckless driving meant I lose my license for a, a while, and then I have to get some kind of weird, crazy, super heavy insurance. Whereas oh, if it was yeah. the one below, which I personally believed I was guilty of, definitely. I was totally ready to cop for it um, because... I didn't do all the stuff he said, but I did do some stuff that was not good. Um, but this other person got off scot-free when they, it was, the accident was 100% their fault, or at least 90% their fault. You can see I'm channeling my inner 20-year-old rage at this point. But um, so the, the public defender I get assigned says, look, don't even fight this. If the cop shows up, no one's going to listen to you. Nobody cares about the logic of it. If he shows up, you're going to get slapped with something 10 times worse. Just... Take the plea, plead guilty to this. It'll be off your record in whatever it is, two years mm. or five years or something like that. You'll have to do, I think it was called an S1 insurance, something like that. I've totally forgotten it. Or an SR1. I'm like, okay, fine. All right. I want to fight the man, but the man's going to win. Oh, and by the way, like I said, he took my keys. I eventually had to go down to his precinct because I don't know what he did. He just put his... The keys in his lost and found or something like that. Took me forever to get them. And in the meantime, um, we had our car parked off to the side of the road, all banged up. Didn't want to lock it because I didn't have keys for it. And so we got broken into during that time. Yeah. And they stole our... Um, Radio our, thingy. Yeah, well, it was it was a cassette deck. <laughs> woo Because uh, we had a separate cassette deck because this was a long time ago before people had, you know, MP3 players in their cars. So that got stolen and because uh, somebody... Oh, it was just, and you know, ah. So then what I have to do, well, all this means I now have a reckless driving and I can no longer work in the employee of the United States Postal Service as a, as a mail delivery guy. I lost my job over this. Now, to be fair, I was going to lose my job over it anyway because I was a student at the University of Washington. This was a part-time job. And well, I forgot what the term is for a temp worker for the post office. There was a particular term I was, and you could only work six months out of the year. So my six months was going to come up anyway. I wasn't going to be able to work, but it ended up, I mean, I ended up losing my, you know, having to stop early. Although it's interesting, um, my boss did let me actually continue to work for longer than he should. Because actually, oh, that's right, I did have my dr- reckless driving, but Jen at the time had a 50cc scooter, which did not qualify as a motor vehicle, counted as a moped basically. So actually, I did continue to, to drive on the moped because that was legal, um, even when I wasn't legal to drive a car. Eventually, I got my license back and I had to get insurance. I had to use this insurance for whatever it was, yeah. two years, something like that. And the funny thing was, it was impossible to get insurance. I mean, you couldn't just go online and find a place. So I had to travel all over the city to try to find somebody who would insure this young kid with the reckless driving on his record. And eventually, I found literally a nice old Italian man whose name was Guido, <laughs> who ran an insurance <laughs> office out of this little, like... Uh, his, his little hole in the wall on the second story of some apartment complex. I think he lived there. And he said, hey, okay, I'll cover you, kid. Don't worry. Uh, so he was used to tough luck cases. And the benefit I got for backing him, you know, this was a, he gave me a uh, Playboy calendar. 
which was, um, you know, I didn't get a toaster. I got a Playboy calendar for signing up with Guido. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and this was actually good insurance. It covered me for anything. I mean, I think it's kind of like a high-level commercial-grade insurance that you had to have anyway. So it was, it was much more expensive than normal. And so, but... That was the story in a nutshell. Um, but I ended up with a reckless driving on my record, which uh, you know is, is now obviously gone. But it, it was a minor felony, and you know, like I said, I wanted download. I mean, because again, I was guilty. I was driving poorly, but it wasn't recklessly. It was whatever the classification is below recklessly in my esteemed political or not political uh, legal opinion but it hardly matters that is the story and that is how i lost my job at the post office which subsequently led to me getting a job at nintendo which uh if that hadn't happened if so if none of this had happened i can't complain Actually, if none of this had happened yeah then i don't think i ever would have gotten the job at nintendo and we wouldn't be here today so there you go so there you go so Right. Okay. So that was Robert's question number one. Question number two is, would you mind telling us the full story of what happened after Nintendo? Yes. Honey Pie, I'll let you field that question. Yes, we would mind. It's a very uh, good no, story. No, I think you have to append that to, yes, you would mind. I mind. I just don't want to have it out there. Robert, I would be more than happy to go into just as much detail about the circumstances under which the, the rest of the Nintendo story, but... Jen is mortified. I'm mortified. She's fine with me telling you all that stuff. She's fine with me telling the world I got fired from Nintendo for stealing office supplies and mm. post-it notes. But she's not fine with me. Now, it's funny. After this, because right after I told I, the last podcast when I talked about all this, yeah. Jen was a little uncomfortable saying that. And she said, yeah, you're not telling the rest of that story. <laughs> and I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. She says, no. I mean, because there's a little bit of... Stuff that happens. So I actually, I went onto the uh, Washington State's uh, some website and I confirmed that the statute of limitation for what we subsequently did has expired. We are totally in the clear. Nothing bad could happen if we let the world know what we did with that dot matrix uh, printer. You, what you did. What I did with that dot matrix printer. Yeah. Which, again, we wouldn't be where we are today if I hadn't done that. Yep. But for whatever reason, Jen is uncomfortable I with am. the last chapter of this story coming to light. Yep. So I'm sorry, folks. I cannot tell you. If you ever run into me at a convention, ask, hey, what happened after Nintendo? And I'll be more than happy to tell you, but Jen will not let me announce it on the podcast. Never mind the fact that I have told, I've told this story every time I have ever been interviewed for a job for the last 20 years. And I just think it's a funny story. But Jen takes it a little bit more seriously than I do. I do. No one's listening, honey pie. It's totally fine. <laughs> well, then no one will ask you at a convention. All right. Sorry, Robert. If you ever see me in real life, ask me. And there you go. Okay. And then Robert has two more questions. Um, as your live streaming of code names has been popular, do you think you should expand this? When you're playing games anyway, wouldn't it be easy to stream it, or do you feel that added pressure makes you enjoy your gaming sessions less? Um, I do know. Yeah, I've actually thought about doing the Periscope thing, just getting out of. But in all honesty, I don't think so because you may think otherwise because Jen has gotten a lot more comfortable on camera, but she still don't like it. She would still rather not be on camera. Don't forget, the reason Jen is participating in this Q&A is because the stretch goal from last year's Kickstarter was originally, Jen will appear in every month's top 10 and talk about the topic herself. She's like, do I have to appear on camera every month? Okay, well, you'll do it in the podcast. Do I have to talk about this? You know, and so Jen's Well, I just don't necessarily have a lot to say about 
stuff like yeah. that. But no, Jen has called me to task for um, panning the camera up when she's sitting on the couch and I'm <laughs> yeah. like trying to do my final thoughts. He's like, am I on camera? I am not on camera. You, 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 you know. <laughs> Like the other day I was filming something and oh, she had her headphones yeah. on so she didn't hear I was doing final thoughts and she just walked right out. And um, <laughs> you can see she, on the did camera. You like, me up? So oh. Jen does not like appearing on camera. So no, I don't think that's gonna happen. It could. We could just set up an iPhone and periscope every single game we play. And honestly, I think that would be kind of cool because I think people would get a kick out of watching how I teach Jen. Because actually, I think I'm a pretty good game teacher. You're an awesome game teacher. Um, but no, I don't think it's going to happen because uh, Jen would not enjoy the added pressure. So, sorry, Robert, it's not going to happen. Question number four, <laughs> um, unless you would like to add something to that, Honey Pie. Robert's just asking, hey, why don't you just stream live every game you play? Yeah. No. There you go. Yeah, no, says Jen. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, you and Jen mentioned in one podcast that you might not stay in Malta for many more years. Do you have any ideas, plans, preferences for other countries, especially low cost of living ones? That's Robert's last question. I'll let yeah. Jen field this one. Oh, actually, yeah, there's so many amazing places in this world. Actually, you used to subscribe to a newsletter. Yep. Pre-internet, when you couldn't just go to a website and look this yeah, up. Yeah, and they sent it to me in the post. Yes, yeah, so an actual thing. What was it called? The Oh, International... Living, maybe? I think something like, it was. It was a newsletter we got every month or every quarter or something like yeah. that. There was all this research on all the cheapest places in the world you could live safely and comfortably for as an American yep. and retire early. Because yeah. we've been talking about retiring early ever since we got married in our 20s. Yeah, basically. So yeah. Jen's done a lot of research on this. Yep. So what other places, honey? Well, um, Chile looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be really great. Of course, on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um Barcelona would be okay. a wonderful place. Yeah. Um, I've actually just recently started thinking about American territories because that would be kind of cool to be sort of back in the U.S. as far as postal things are concerned. Yeah. But yet still live somewhere kind of tropical. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, that's going to be something I'm going to look into. Yeah. I don't know if cost of living would be absolutely astronomical since it is sort of the U.S. But yeah. Um, and I haven't done any looking into that yet, but I, I thought I would. Um, I, I would really like to live out of our camper van. Ah, yes. As well. And the bongo. Take a, take a year or two and just, you know, kind of home base out of somewhere for a week or two or longer or a month or two if we decided we liked an area. I mean, Rome is certainly a place I'd like to spend more time. If we rented a flat in Rome for three or four months... Could really explore the city. I'd love to live in Venice again. Well, we visited Venice. I'd like to live in Venice for a couple months. Which is certainly not low cost to live. But that's your point, is that we just live in a trailer. Well, if we we lived in the the bongo, yeah. Yes. I think we could do. And then we could live with our dogs. The bongo, by the way. Yeah. People are wondering, what the heck is a bongo? The bongo was a short-lived, very popular pop-up top camper van from Japan that they made for like 10 years. Is it Mazda or is it a Nissan? It's Mazda. Mazda. It's a Mazda Bongo. And in England, there is a huge following. Um, It's kind of like a cult vehicle that people actually get them imported from Japan. They don't make them anymore. Nope. And so we got one. We bought one used. And it's thanks to that bongo that you're listening to us right now because we, it was our first big bongo trip through France yep. that prompted me to pick up a copy of Pandemic so we could play that in the evening. Otherwise, I mean, we'd still be playing co-op video games instead of board games. 
Um, but so, so even though we've moved to Malta, we still have that bongo. A friend of Jen's in England were, was very kind and generous and basically let us store it in her barn. Yeah. Um, and every time Jen goes back, she goes and visits and, you know, just fires up the engine to make sure it's, it's a diesel. Yeah. Cause it's a diesel. And, uh, you know, we, we've done two big road trips. Well, no, we've done two major road trips with it. The first one to France yep. and then the second one to Prague to get the chicken cup. Uh, which is where we got the chicken cup. <laughs> and on the way back, that was our first trip to Essen. Yep. And then we did some smaller ones to, you did one with your mom to, yep. Ireland, yep, to Ireland, which I did not get to go on. I'm always jealous I didn't get to go, but that's when I was hardcore and crunch on yeah. Fable. So I couldn't go, I think. I think it was Fable. I don't remember. Um, and then we did one with your folks to the Lakes District in, and Scotland. Well, there was actually two. Went oh, two separate ones, was it? To the Peak District the first time. And yeah. then the second time was uh, the Lake District right. and then up to Scotland. Yeah, so we so we put in a lot of miles on that thing already, and we've really enjoyed it. Yep. But it's ever since we've lived in Malta, I mean, we we had a choice when we came to Malta because it's incredibly expensive to import oh. a car here. So we had to decide, yep. are we going to bring the Bongo or are we going to bring the little um, Nissan... Micra. The Nissan Micra. Which is uh, a one or the other. One, you know, and we because we could only afford to bring one. Um, well, or no. It was something like the, the rules of bringing in importing vehicles was you had to have owned it for three years mm-hmm. prior to moving. Otherwise, you were got you were going to get slapped with like three thousand euro import. Fee, yeah, you might as well like just that. buy a car here because that's it. They encourage. They don't want people to bring cars in. They yeah. want people to buy cars locally because um, it used to be for a long a time. There was a big you know. Resale uh, thing. A resale business of just, you know, regular people without bothering with resale licenses, just bringing cars in and just selling them, you know, after. And so the Maltese government cracked down on that. And so there's huge fees unless you've owned a car for three plus years. Yep. And the problem with it, we couldn't bring both cars. We had to pick one or the other because they're both in, in your name, name. Yeah. and you're only allowed to bring one. And if one of them had been my name, we could have brought both. Yeah, but what would we do with two cars ah, yeah. on this tiny little? And ultimately we decided to bring the, the micro because we figured the bongo is this weird ancient thing Japanese. that if you live in Japan or you live in England, you, you can parts. find parts for it. Anywhere else in the world, you're SOL if it breaks down. So it's been sitting there. But, you know, Jen, it just drives Jen nuts that it's just sitting there not getting used. So we keep talking mm. about, you know, when we leave in Malta, before we ever, before we land, wherever we're going to end up, whether it's Chile or just back in Seattle, Seattle yeah. living in Burien again and, um, you know, move back into the house in Burien so we could sell it without capital gains tax or whatever all that business is. Jen could talk at great length about that. <laughs> um, that, you know, we'd get in the bongo and we'd drive around for a year. I think she's a bit out of touch with her. Yeah, I, you know, it's cool living in that thing for a couple of weeks. A couple of months would be stretching it. A full year, I don't think, I think we'd be... It'd, Still it'd be, crazy? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But we, we could just, all we could do is try it. Yep. So that's on your listening to. Uh, also, before we came to Malta, we were very seriously talking about Ireland and Wales, yeah. both of which have incredibly low cost of living. Yes. Yeah. Um, leaving Guildford, which is one of the most expensive towns in it's all of England. Practically, you might as well live in London. Yeah, exactly. So we were thinking about moving out of there and switching. But then the job in Malta came up, and so here we are. Good question. Um, any other things to say about low cost of living international thoughts you've had, honey pie? Oh, well, I, um, sort of a, a year ago, I was having a whole bunch of fantasies about moving to France. <laughs> oh gosh. Yes. Because apparently there's this crazy thing. You can get these amazing and you can just yeah. outright buy these wonderful chalets in Southern France 
for for or, next to nothing. Or anywhere in France. They're all over the place. Well, yeah, you just got to look at all villages. these ones in the southern France because it's warm all year round and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I was looking on the East Coast yeah. as well. So Jen was very serious looking at it. I mean, she kept um, – so, and once she looked at a few of them, every time she goes on any website, she's just constantly bombarded. Yeah. All the, the flash ads on every page were just constantly bombarding her with more French villas and, <laughs> um, and little houses. Yeah. And so she was like constantly bombarded with French house porn, she yep, called it. I called it my French house porn. Yeah, her French house porn. And she was constantly looking at it, driving herself nuts. And so she was pretty serious about it. She went so far as to look into it. And then you discovered that there are fr- restrictions that yeah. you can – buy them but you can't live in them for more than six months or something like no, that it was it's basically if we became resident in france we'd be taxed at, on french you know as french residents and yes. it's just so non-advantageous for us oh that it would just be crazy because we'd be paying english taxes french taxes and american taxes right triple and, tax yeah triple threat Woo! i love that right paying tax which we don't have to worry about here yeah, because Malta is very tax advantaged actually you only pay tax on the amount of money you bring into the country to live on so, Yahoo. And there's a certain amount that's exempted. I, I don't remember what the amount is at the moment, but basically we essentially pay no tax living in Malta. Yeah. Yay. Because we aren't living in America or England. Well, I mean, we still pay um, English taxes on our English income, which is glass, mm-hmm. and um, American taxes if we were to have much income in America, which we don't at the moment. Right. But, um, yeah. All right. So it's really nice. Well, there you go. And actually, we're living on savings here, so that money's already been taxed because it was taxed at source when you earned it. Yeah, when I when I when I first came here for the year I worked here in Malta. Okay, next question. Kevin asks. Thank you, Kevin, for putting the question in bold, so it's easy to spot. When you and Jen play Dominion, do you include attack cards? Answer: No. Uh, the curse card. Yeah, we we yeah. just don't. There's just no reason to. No witches for us. Um, I know they're mild. They annoy the heck out of me. They can bog the game down and make the game take too long. No, we don't enjoy them. We, I mean, it's just there's just no reason to whatsoever. Uh, basically, my Dominion is set up that every collection of cards I've put in a sleeve. So you know, the entire whatever it is, ten cards goes into one sleeve. So whenever I set up to play Dominion, I just open up. The two boxes of Dominion I've got, which are the Cornucopia box and the Alchemy box. Between those two boxes, you can fit every single uh, card from every expansion in them. And so I just, you know, grab a few from a few uh, expansions. Oh, here's a couple from Alchemy. Here's, here's one from Prosperity, whatever. I just mix and match, get them up, slap them down. And when I'm just pulling stuff randomly out of the box, if I pull an attack card, I just plop it right back in. Those things are never going to get played by us. I agree. They're crap. They have no place in the game. They add nothing, and the game's better off without them. Thanks, Kevin. Keith says, popular board games often seem to spawn lighter card or dice-based games. I was wondering about the opposite scenario. Can you think of any lighter card or dice games you'd like to see transformed into a meteor full-on board game version? And if so, would it be primarily to see the theme explored in a deeper way? Or would you like to push the entering mechanism further um, or some other reason? Thanks so much. That's a good question. Wow. See, this is why I should really read these and think about it ahead of time. Hmm. So, little light game. Jen's just staring at me blankly. Yeah, I'm not very good at this sort of thing. Well, you can see it right there. Let's see, a little light game that we would like to see as a bigger, heavier game. You know, the ideas or the theme fleshed out. Wow, that's a good question. I'm looking at every little light game we've got right now because I've got them all pretty much on the same spot on the shelves. And 
I'm at a loss. I don't think I want any of them. Because honestly, we like little light games. We like little games we can bust out in 20 minutes. Oh, what, what we like oftentimes would keep a game that is, is because it is light and quick. Yeah. Let's see. Something that's... Uh, no. I'm literally <laughs> I'm going through them one at a time thinking, would I like a bigger, heavier version of Hanabi? No. Of Isle of Trains? No. Of Jaipur? No. I mean, you remember Jaipur. You love yeah, Jaipur. Would you like to see a bigger, heavy Jaipur? No, it's still about collecting the camels, but adds like something else or, you know, expands it and makes it. I, I just don't think so. We love little tiny games. Um, yeah, I have just done a quick visual inventory of every single one of them and not a single one jumps out at me saying, yeah, I wish that game would take an additional 40 minutes longer and would add three new. Yeah, I, I just think the answer is no. It's a great question. But nothing's jumping. I mean, Targi? No. Akrotiri? No. They're awesome. We love little games. We love big, heavy games. We just love games for what they are, not what they could be, I guess. <laughs> All righty. Christian would like to know, what do I think of the announcement made by Asmodee North America cutting off distributors and limiting online sales? Honey, what do you think? I have no clue what you're talking about. Come on. Answer the question. This is the most important pressing question of our time. Oh. It's um, limiting sales? That's never good. Okay. How about that? Right. Okay. So for for folks like Jen who don't really know what Christian is asking about, apparently Asmodee, which is – I don't know if they're the biggest board game producing company in the world, but they must be one of the top three because they were already big and they keep buying up other companies like Fantasy Flight and – and Days of Wonder and whatnot. So, you know, they keep buying. So they're getting bigger and bigger all the time. And that in of itself is something that is a red fire alert for a lot of people because, oh, no, all the independents are getting bought up by Asmodee. Asmodee is the evil mothership and, you know, they're a big corporate entity and they don't. I, I don't know. But you didn't ask about that. Asmodee recently announced that they were adjusting their policies for how they distribute their games out into the market. And I have to admit, Christian, I haven't paid that much attention to it. So correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is they are going to be working with five or six specific distributors. Um, to, so all their games are going to be available through these specific distribution companies. Uh, uh-huh. And in some cases, like Fantasy Flight Games used to be available through 10 different distributors, and now they're only five. But in other cases, Days of Wonder Games only used to be available through one distributor, and now they're available through five. So to me, that sounds like a wash. I don't know that it really matters that much. I mean, to end users like us, who cares what distributor they come through? It's a problem for little mom and pop. Like um, Board Game Guru is a great online uh, seller in England that I used to use all the time. Um, you know, maybe it's a problem for them because, oh, I don't work with that distributor. I work with this other distributor. Now I have to open relations with another distributor. But I assume those are surmountable issues at the end of the day. I mean, a distributor's job is to distribute the game. And I can certainly understand Asmodee as they get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more complex with all these different game developers, you know, with different relationships. They just want to simplify and streamline and just make sure, look, this is how it works. These are five distributors. You get them. I don't see that. I, I don't see why there's any sturm and drang about that at all. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. I think what people are more upset about was another thing they announced was the fact that they want to incentivize, reward. Basically, Asmodee, as a company, very much appreciates the importance of brick-and-mortar retail stores to the growth of the board game hobby. Because the reality is, even though pretty much, any, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a hardcore board game geek. You just are. You are not a, you're not a muggle. 
<laughs> um, you, you you know your games and you know who Cool Stuff Inc. is or Fun Again Games or, um, you know, I mean, you buy, chances are you buy a lot of your games online and whatnot and you figure everybody does and it's great because you get, you, you get eight bucks off, ten bucks off every game you buy because of these huge discounts you can get through online retailers where if you had to actually buy a game in a local store, I mean, you wouldn't be able to afford as many games as you uh, obsessively buy. I understand that. There's huge, huge discounts, and Asmodee is creating a circumstance where um, only certain online retailers will be allowed, will be authorized to sell. Mm. So it used to be any mom, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry online, anybody who gets a license to sell games online could sell everything from Asmodee, but now that's not the case. I'm sure you'll always be able to get stuff through Amazon. You'll be able to get stuff through the big hitters, through your Barnes & Noble, through your Cool Stuff Inks and whatnot, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to do to all the little mom and pop game, you know, people out there who basically make a living, you know, and um, selling games as online retailers undercutting the prices of what you know um, brick and mortar stores have shop and so i know people are really upset about that and honestly i'm not upset about it in the slightest because one this is mostly americans who are upset and it's ridiculous how cheap americans can get stuff <laughs> it is obscene how cheap stuff is when you compare it to how much it costs the us in the rest of the world to buy these games um what? americans saying i need to be able to buy my games for 29 bucks 39 bucks how can i afford that try 60 bucks try 70 bucks that's what the rest of us have to do try shipping to chile yeah you know try shipping to australia or chile or whatnot i mean americans have it pretty good and so i'm sorry that maybe now that there are fewer online retailers that you can buy your games from because asmodee is restricting it a little bit and at the same time i guess there's something about how uh, the online retail will have to, the prices will have to more closely match the MSRP of what, uh, which is what you know, stores charge MSRP. They pretty much have to to be able to stay in business because oh, they've sure. got to pay the bills. They've got yeah. to pay rent and stuff. Like whereas you know places with warehouses, they can undercut the online stores. Well, you know what, places with warehouses don't have to pay sales staff either. Exactly. Yeah. And so I understand, yeah, they can really undercut. And here's the thing. Here's the way I look at it. I think overall it's great that Asmodee is doing this because the reality is the board game hobby is grown not by Cool Stuff, Inc. Hardcore geeks like us know to go there and we do all our buying there. Cool Stuff, Inc. has never, has done very little to convert muggles into geeks, to grow the hobby as a whole. It is in Asmodee's best interest to not continue selling to more and more insular geeks who just keep buying games over and over again because we're a finite market. It is in their best interest to encourage and incentivize more brick and mortar retail stores to sell games because, all I mean, as many of us as there are, we are a drop in the bucket of humanity compared to all the people out there who aren't playing board games, who do not realize there's anything other than Monopoly. A mom-and-pop board game shop in, you know, in the middle of you know, whatever your town is is going to um, convert a lot more players and going to create a lot more board game customers. So it is in Asmodee's best interest to make life better for the brick-and-mortar stores. Because they are the ones that push the industry forward. Um, you know, the, the Cool Stuff Inc., uh, you know, the, the, the ex- insane discounts we get is not making the hobby any bigger. It's not making it more inclusive. Never mind the fact that local game shops do, you know, um, they do contests, they do competitions, they do events, they do so much more 
to spread the gospel of board gaming. And Asmodee recognizes that's in their best interest to do. And so it makes perfect business sense for them to do this. And I'm sorry it means that maybe um, your favorite retailer online that you were able to get stuff for five bucks cheaper, you won't be able to get them there anymore. And instead, you'll have to pay five bucks more and get them at an authorized online place or buy them at a local store. It's... We're talking about a few bucks here and there, um, and I think people can afford it. And if you can't afford it, just don't buy it. You know, if it's too expensive, don't buy it. You already have plenty of games. You don't need to keep buying every single game that comes out. You don't need to get that additional 20% off that the online retailers can give you so that you can just keep on obsessively buying tons of games. It's okay if you slow down a little bit. I guess that's kind of my feeling, that it's much ado about nothing. It's perfectly reasonable. The people of Asmodee are not mustache-twirling villains <laughs> trying to do that. Because it does, it's not like they make more money. Whether um, Cool Stuff Inc. sells it or Mom and Pop Shop in downtown Anywheresville sells it, they make the exact same amount of money off that sale. You know, that's how MSRP works. Mm, that may or may not be true. Go on, Honey Pie. Well, um, there are quantity discounts. So if you buy 100 Yeah, but, units- I mean, but, uh, but, but that's immaterial because Asmodee does not sell their games to any Mom and Pop Shop. They sell them to these distributors, and then distributors get them to the mom and pop shop. Asmodee sells mm-hmm. every single game to the five distributors they do at a flat rate. At they whatever. get the same okay. amount of money no matter what. Distributors might do different things. There's competition amongst the distribution houses, um, and now there's fewer of them, and I guess that means potentially bigger prices and whatnot. But still, we're talking. Yeah, but I'm saying that Amazon, which would buy a thousand units as opposed to a mom and pop, that from would the buy distributor, 10. yeah, exactly. The mom and pop are going to pay more per unit. Yes, for only buying ten. Right, and that's the thing. And I and I don't think it's actually been officially declared. They just made some noise about how the officially authorized online resellers of games will have to adhere. You know, will not be able to charge whatever they want. They will be, you know, to to have their authorization, right. yep. they're going to have to charge something. I'm not. I, I don't think anybody knows if it has to be. Oh, you have to charge MSRP. I don't think it's going to be that. Well, it they just be- can't quite undercut the brick-and-mortar mom-and-pop shops as much as they would otherwise. The other thing, too, is, again, from Asmodee's perspective, Asmodee wants to see more games in Walmart. Asmodee wants to see more games in Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble will pick up a lot of games, but not if they're being undercut by 30% by all these online retailers who have absolutely no overhead costs. Yep. So, again, it's in Asmodee's best interest to incentivize little mom-and-pop shops, but also the big brick-and-mortar stores, too. And the long-term effect of this is a bigger, healthier, more vibrant industry that is not so insular just reselling to the same geeks over and over and over again through the online shops, but instead bringing more and more people in. That's my perspective. Seems like a reasonable perspective. Um, Jen has, knows a lot more about retail than me. Do you have anything else to say, having just heard this for the first time? Nope. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Well, all righty then. There you go, Christian. That's my two cents, for what it's worth. Although, everything I just said you have to take with a grain of salt, because you have to understand, Jen and I, we are not normal gamers. Probably at this point, I would say 70% of all the games that come into our house our review copies sent to me. Yep. So I realize I don't have a pot to piss in here. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight. We still do have to buy a lot of our own games, you know, and you know, still 30 or 40% of the games we get, that's still a lot of games considering how many games we get every year. And so I imagine this will affect us as well. I mean, 
every Fantasy Flight game I've ever got, I've had to buy myself because I don't get. Actually, I don't think I get any Asmodee. I don't have a in with Asmodee. Um, I tried, but you know, they just weren't really interested. You notice I just don't tend to cover as many Asmodee games because, actually, in all honesty, most of the games they put out are just not interesting to me in Gen in the first place. So I'm really going off into the weeds here. But long story short, I am aware. I am calling this into the fact that yeah, that's easy for Rodder to say because he gets so many free review copies of games. Yep. So fair enough. I cop to that. But even if I didn't, I don't think it would change my attitude. My attitude would be, oh, that I can take it on the chin and pay a few more bucks per game because this is better for the hobby long term. That's my view. All right. Thanks, Christian. Next up, Kyla, honey pie, would like to know. Oh, here's one for you, honey pie. Oh, it's for both of us. What kind of music do you listen to? Who are your favorite bands Ooh. and artists? Now, do you want to answer that now or do you want to think about it for a little bit? Because I've been shouting now for 15 more, four minutes and wouldn't mind pausing to go get (laughs) a drink of water. Okay. Uh, I'll talk. You get some water. Okay. Okay. Well, let's see. So me, I like Brian Setzer. I like Dixieland Jazz. I like uh, Jason Mraz. Oh, dear. That was the remote control. Um, Kelly Kobe Calais. I like Jewel. Uh, let's see who else. Oh, I like um, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Oh, there's a new guy, Andy Grammer, I think. I think so. Yeah. Is that the guy I really like lately? Uh, oh, oh, Michael Bublé. Is that right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, good. I, I called him Michael. What's the other guy I called him the other day? Anyway, Michael Bolton, I think. Yeah, not Michael Bolton. Michael Bublé. So yeah. Pretty much just, you know, sort of mellower stuff, but cheerful, fun. What's the most hardcore thing you like? Ooh, hardcore. I like Queen. Queen? Yeah. All right. I mean, I guess that was kind amazing. of hardcore at one point. Oh, sorry. Kind of subversive uh, at one point. I, but. I like some Guns N' Roses songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm not really hardcore. So, Sweet Child of Mine and Welcome yeah. to the Jungle is as hardcore as you get. That's pretty much it. And mostly because, I mean, if you heard those on the radio now, you probably wouldn't, you'd think, eh, whatever. Yeah. It's only because you nostalgia for high school. Because yeah. all your friends were listening to it, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sweet child of mine, you say, why is he screaming so much? Can't Michael Boulé do a cover of that? <laughs> it would be so much nicer. <laughs> He's got such a nice voice. <laughs> Actually, I really like Andy Grammer, though. Mm-hmm. Every song I listen to him just seems so respectful and actually very feminist. Okay. And I really, I like that. It's really nice to hear something like that. Okay. Um, as a genre. I mean, it's like, it's almost like he's gone out of his way to start a whole new genre of music. Okay. I love it. All right. Okay. So who do you like? Uh, well, I, I guess Andy Grammer's okay. I'm not really... See, we, these days, Jen and I, pretty much all our listening, we listen to via Pandora, yeah. which uh, is a tricky thing to do because, of course, we don't live in America. We live in Malta where it's not available, but we use a proxy, one of those things that bounces our internet connection all around the world so that we can watch Netflix and Hulu and Pandora as if we were living in America. Definitely worth it. Costs us, I think, six bucks a month for the service. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, pretty much all our stuff is through Pandora. So, I mean, actually... If you ever use the service, we just make channels. We've a song we like or a musician or whatever we yeah. like. We just, oh, that sounds good. Let's make a channel of that. And then we'll just listen to it for a while till we get sick of it because they tend to play the same songs over and over again. Yeah. I don't think you've made an Andy Grammer channel, but it seems like Andy no. Grammer keeps showing up a lot in the channels we do have. Yeah, that's because I thumb him. 
oh, oh, you thumb them, so they keep on coming back. Yeah. Right. So, and actually, I'm, I'm right now, I'm on Pandora. I'm looking through the channels we've got. And you've got a Brian Setzer Orchestra yep. channel. Oh, we've got the, uh, the oh, Glee. Glee cast radio. Yeah, we were a bit glee Yeah, Yeah, we, we went, we went through a year. hardcore Glee um, uh, binge, <laughs> a few months of binge watching, two or three episodes of Glee every night. Uh, let's see, what else? There's your, uh, uh, your second Brian Setzer. Well, well, one for his holiday songs and one for his regular songs. Mm. There's a Michael Bublé and, um, all right. Yeah. Oh, you've got uh, Take On Me Radio for yeah. AHA. There's Living in the Moment. That's probably my favorite Jake and Jason Mraz song. Living in the Moment. So you've made a station based on, you like songs like Living in the Moment from yeah. Jason Mraz, basically. All righty. Oh, we got a Neil Diamond. You used to be hardcore oh, to Neil Diamond. Yeah. But that's definitely a nostalgia. My dad always had Neil Diamond going on on the 8-track. Mm-hmm. No, no, the reel-to-reel. That the was reel-to-reel. what he had. <laughs> yeah, baby, yeah. yeah. When we first got married, I have to admit, I got sick and tired of Neil Diamond. You listened to it so much. Yeah. This is, We actually, when we first got married, this was long enough ago, that we were in the CD of the month club. <laughs> and we were one of the inaugural. Oh my God, we can get a CD every month. This is amazing. Yeah, and we, and got- we get 10 of them for a penny right up front. And then Yay! we're paying for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And you actually had two or three Neil Diamond CDs, and those were on constant rotation in our six disc <laughs> um, slider mechanism thing that we yeah. had. We had a carousel that you could put like, Yeah, the five carousel discs thing. In. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I was like, it was five discs of nonstop wall to wall Neil oh, Diamond well, for it years. Wasn't five discs. Yeah, it was a lot. Okay, yeah, there was five. Um, and, you know, actually, these days, I actually like a Neil Diamond. Diamond quite a bit. Actually, I probably turn on this Neil Diamond station more than you do. But um, I thought you were just doing it for me. No, I enjoy it too. I mean, oh. obviously, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible songsmith. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's just, it was just too much. Let's see. So what do I like? I'm uh, pretty eclectic, I should say. What, honey pie? Can you help Dob get up? Dobby! Dobby, come here. Dob is just sitting at the bottom of the couch shivering. I'm all mic'd up. All right, hold on a second. Looking at us, and I can't, I'm knitting and I've got tool on me. So he's going to help Dob, motivate Dob to get up here. No, there's a good girl. Yeah, Dob is a strange dog. She, <laughs> we know she wants up on the couch. She's perfectly capable of jumping up on the couch, but she just sits on the floor staring at us until we'll come and pick her up and put her on the couch. <laughs> and, sh- and shivering. Yeah, shivering. Just please let me up on the couch. You're like, you can get up on the couch. And to be fair, she's, what, 15 years old? She's getting old. So um, we're happy to have her on the couch. So anyway, so I'm pretty eclectic in my taste. Um, I would definitely say... My favorite band across the board of all time is the Beatles. I went through such a huge Beatles phase throughout all of high school. There was a used record store in Bremerton. I lived in Belfair. And I bought a used copy of every single album the Beatles ever put out. And I record them all to cassette tape, and I just listen to them nonstop. I mean, I can pretty much recite any Beatles song from memory. I mean, the entirety of the White Album. So I really hardcore went into that Um and in my early days, in the 70s, my dad basically chose the music for the family, and I grew up listening to country western. I could, any country western song prior oh. to 1978. Hey, somebody needs to send him a question to questions at rado.com and ask him to sing the C.M. McCoy song? The C.W. McCall song. Thanks. All it's right. adorable. It's what won my heart. Yes. <laughs> I would hope there's other things that won your heart. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've... And I mean, I have to admit, I would cop to a fair amount of nostalgia for those things, old Oak Ridge Boys and Tammy Wynette and Coal Miner's Daughter, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's like a big part of my childhood. I still remember all those great, I mean, I missed most, I missed all the, you know, I never listened to the Stones or 
or um, ACDC or anything like that until I practically I got to college. And you know, I listened to all that in my young days. Then in high school, I pretty much just listened to the Beatles. And I made fun of all my friends. Um, and I, I felt so much above them because I actually listened to real music, not all this electronic crap. <laughs> and nowadays, I love all the, I mean, I love AHA. I love Take On Me. I, you know, all that stuff. Um, I mean, oh, what was it? Uh, always On My Mind to me when, when um, was it the pet shop boys had a big hit they did a cover of always on my mind and i'm like oh this is crap willie nelson is the only version of always on my mind it's a, it's pure and innocent and sweet and you know meaningful and this is just claptrap but now i, I love pet shop boys always on my mind i think it's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal i love it um so i kind of but anyway so i was i was i was always like out of sync with everybody but when I went to college, I think I kind of got more into sync. And I basically went through hardcore love of every type of genre. I mean, I listened to Pour Some Sugar on Me by Death Lever to I Was Blue oh, in the Face. Oh, God. I, that is such an embarrassing song for me. <laughs> I am not embarrassed. It is an awesome song. That rocks the house. Uh, I was into Transvision Vamp. I was really, I loved, loved, loved in college. Um, oh, Birdhouse and Your Soul, guys. Uh don't let's start. This is the worst part. I can't think of their names. Oh, they might be giants. They might be giants. I everything they might be giants did, and um, you know I got I kind of got more into mainstream pop music at that point. You know, Ace of Base. All man, shame they're oh, racists. Who knew? Here and Dead or Alive. Those are my favorite. High oh yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you know, I mean, so I kind of got into that stuff in college. And, um, you know, and I started listening to ACDC and I never really got into really hardcore. I mean, there's a few Metallica songs I can tolerate, you know, Inner Sandman and stuff like that. But I've never really gotten into speed metal or thrash metal or anything like that. I mean, uh, let's see. But anyway, definitely of all time, my favorite group would have to be the Beatles. Or very close second, a tough tie between the Beatles and the Dire Straits. I absolutely love the Dire Straits to death. They are so good. I've, I've, I have every one of their songs memorized too. I've listened to them so much. Um, and let's see. But these days, I don't know. I, I tend to listen to just you know top forty stuff. Uh, you know whatever. You know, um, a Budapest is a recent song. I love that song to death. That one's absolutely amazing. And uh, Ho Hey, and uh, you know from the was it the the Lumineers. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't mind, you know, pop bubble gum. So, I mean, I, I enjoyed Mbop. I'm not ashamed to admit that Hanson had a really nice song there. And, um, <laughs> oh, uh, let's see. Oh, also, let's see. What's the station I listen to most on Pandora? It is, let me see if I can find it. Oh, Plain White Tees. Oh, yeah. yeah plain White Tees, they're lovely. Michael... Franti and uh, Spearhead. I've been listening to that station a lot lately, and it uh, has kind of a Jamaican or a, a reggae, uh, mm-hmm. sort of a reggae thing. I think I've, Jen's gotten kind of sick of it, but I've really been enjoying that. So that's been my jam lately. Well, one of the nice things we do when we play a game is Deckel um, get going on Pandora for some sort of thematic music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's nice. Yep. So, yeah, we do that a lot as well. Pandora is la- awesome. We like it so much we actually pay for it yeah. to uh, avoid the commercials. Let's uh, see. So that was Kyla's question about music. Moving on to Chuck's question. Describe for me the difference between sandbox and point salad games. Would you like to take that, honey pie? Sandboxes are the kind where absolutely everything is available to you from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And you've got no limiter on all your choices. Mm-hmm. Point salad, I am going to guess, 
is where there are several ways that you can win and you just have to go along this path to collect the points versus that path to collect this number of points Not versus quite. this path. Okay. Close. I don't know. A point solid game is generally a game that rewards you for everything. No matter what you do, oh, two points for this, five points for that, seven points for that. You know, Steffenfeld games are very much like that. No matter, there are a lot of things to do, but it's it's a relatively recent thing that. And you know what? You get a few little points every step of the way. You're just constantly drowning in points. The game is a point salad. You get points. You get points. You get points. 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 I don't know if point salad is actually the the best term for it, but that's what it is. It caught on. Those are point salad games. So. Point Salad and Sandbox, which Jen did nail, or at least, okay, I should further uh, illuminate our definition of a sandbox game is one, because other people might, I mean, might define it a little bit differently, and Jen was a bit broad. For us, sandbox games are games where there's nothing inherent to the structure of the game that, oh gosh, how to put it? Where that. <sighs> The, the, the game creates structures that gives you a problem to solve. You sit down at the table. The, the variable setup of the game has created a circumstance where, right, for me to do the best I can, I have to make use of what the game has given to me this time. And this time is radically different than what it gave me last time. Oh. So, I mean, that's my own... That, whenever I talk about sandbox in video... I mean, you're, you're right. I think, honey, you had the more appropriate, the broader definition. Okay. Of, oh, a sandbox game is just a game where you can do a lot of stuff. No, okay, well, then I misunderstood because there are lots of games that because of, you know, like whatever the end goals cards that are that come out yeah. that gives you a definite direction of mm-hmm. how you're going to win. Right. So, I mean, and that, that is the that would be the antithesis of sandboxiness in that. I mean, a sandbox game could still you. Oh, I could do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But because, hey, here's this thing. Yeah. I, I, I should probably go ahead and do that. Yeah. Now, pretty much most games do that because, you okay, here's the things, whether it's five things or 50 things that can score me points, I know I have to do that. A sandbox game, generally speaking, doesn't, like, channel you in any particular direction. Everything's available to you right up front. I could do X, Y. I mean, Caverna yeah. is yeah. the example of it. I know. Where all you, the buildings are available to you. Did you it's do a what? sandbox. Do you, whichever ones you want. You just said yes. the opposite of that. What did I just say? You said that a sandbox game is because of the conventions of the game, it leads you to need to do something in this particular path to win. Right. No, yes, like I said, because I'm trying to go. When I talk about sandbox, because I mean, because I'm sure Chuck's asking, you keep talking about sandboxes, and I have, when I talk about it, I'm talking about it, or an element of sandboxiness that's probably a bit different than what everybody thinks. Strictly speaking, uh, most modern games are sandbox. A game that has. Ten different ways you can score points is a sandbox. Hey, there's ten different things you can do. That's fine. And from his perspective, that's very, very similar to a point solid game. Yeah, there's all these different things I can do to get points. What's the difference? I, I've just got a million different ways to get points. To me, what is more quintessential to a sandbox experience is there's nothing in the game. You know, um, all of the yeah, there's lots of ways you can get points, and they're all equally valid. From the moment you sit down to the table, you have to decide for yourself. Oh, I could really focus on a military victory and get points over there, or I could focus on economy, or I could focus on trying to manipulate the Senate. I'm thinking of Trajan now, yeah. or I could focus on trying to impress the emperor. And you know, these are all things you could do. You'll get points for them all because it's a sandbox game. There's all these different ways you can score points, and. Um, and so, for most people, say, yeah, it's a sandbox. Look at all these things you could do. But the reason I don't consider Trajan 
to be a sandbox game is because part of setup of Trajan is you end up with a Moncala in front of you, and we just follow the rule of, hey, just randomize your Moncala, um, and uh, you, know, you get a semi-random selection of Emperor Trajan tiles that puts you on a specific road. Right. That of all the things you could do, there are going to be certain things that are clearly the optimal way to go. The cards or the dice or something. Yeah, in Agricola, it's the hand of cards you get. In Trajan, it's the combination of the way the Moncala lays out and the initiative tiles you get. Um, Caverna, it's to me a true sandbox game because yes, there's a billion things you can do. There's a lot, and you know, it's a point style game. You can get points for X, Y, and Z. Points, 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 points. But when you first sit down to the table, you've got the exact. Uh, whether you the first time or the hundredth time, you are sitting down with the exact same options available to you. Right. Nothing changes. There's nothing inherent to the game that makes you think right because of X, Y, and Z. This is probably the ideal thing I should do. But, depending on what happens, I might go off in a different direction. That, um, a game that doesn't give you that extra thing. I mean, to me, a sandbox game is the opposite of a a game that has variable setup. Games that whenever you set up the game, the circumstances, the randomized elements, whether it's cards or tiles, whatever, creates an optimized path. And the challenge of the game is to identify that path, follow that path, leverage that path, and win with that path. That is what Jen and I enjoy more than anything else. We like finding something, and because that is, for us, it's a problem. The game gives us a problem. Right, here's the hurdles you've got. There's only these things available. This part of the board has been cut off. Sometimes this board is available, sometimes it's not. With all these things, it's it's like um, Dominion. You lay out all your decks of cards. These are the cards you can get this time. Yep. Figure out what is the best path to take. That is the thing Jen and I enjoy more than anything else. And whenever I talk about a game being too sandboxy, it is a game that doesn't do that. Mombasa is a recent example. Every time you play... The, uh, the board is the same. The options are the same. The uh, paths to victory are the same. Sandboxiness has nothing to do with how many individual point-scoring opportunities they are. The more opportunities there are to score points, the more p- points out he gets. Mm. The more a game leaves the door wide open and is the exact same setup every single time. Hmm? I've just had a thought. What's that? The reason that we don't like sandbox games yes. is because I grind. <laughs> yes. And and like that, what was that game we just played? Where I just, I just, my brain just went, you know, because there's a million things. You yeah, can do. because you have to figure out for every card, for every option, for every path, you've got to figure out how many points that is. Okay, and then you've got to go figure out every other path, and 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 you know, at some point, all those paths get to be too much, and it's not fun anymore. It's a grind. Yeah. So that is why I don't like sandbox. There you go. All right. Well done, Honey Pie. So, I don't know if I've done a good job of describing the difference. I mean, Tim, when I say sandbox, to me a sandbox game more than anything else is a game that provides no variability from session to session. Everything that makes one session of the game different than another is 100% driven by what the players do. And the problem Jen and I have, you know, Jen just mentioned a problem, but another problem is those games are fine when you have three or four or five people sitting at the table. Because as soon as one person does something different than the previous game, that creates a ripple effect. And so, oh, uh, it's a worker placement game, I can't do that? Well, I've got to do something different now. But when you have fewer players, like me and Jen, you only have two players every single time you play. And we are two players who are kind of predisposed to doing certain things. Mm -hmm. And we kind of know what each other is going to do (laughs) because we've played games a lot. A game that doesn't give you something that makes the the, uh, landscape different and unique 
is going to feel kind of samey to us. Yeah. Uh, a sandbox, strictly speaking, means you've just got freedom to explore and do whatever you want. And we aren't interested in that. We are interested in a game that, yeah, go ahead and find the best way to do something. But look, we've put you in a situation where you have to figure out how to do a specific thing, not do whatever the heck you want. Yeah, we like parameters. Yeah, we want, we want to be constricted. You know, I mean, when I was a video game developer for years and I would sit down and we were starting to work on a game, I know certain designers who love to, you know, have an endless canvas. They want to do whatever they want. They want their imagination to take where they want. And I would shut down with that. I want you to tell me what my budget is. <laughs> tell me what um, the overall manpower we're going to be. Tell me what my ship date is. I will work backwards from that. I will solve the puzzle of this is what you as a publisher, you're willing to pay this much, you're willing to ship on this date, right. That's an interesting problem for me to solve. Let me come up with the best game I can under those circumstances. Um, that is the opposite of sandbox development where the sky's the limit. Do whatever you want. Follow your muse to the end of days and we'll see what comes of it. That's what Peter Molyneux did. That's what Peter Molyneux does. And um, I've known a lot of other designers, and it drives me nuts. I'm very practical. I'm very pragmatic. This is what I – yeah. So sorry, Chuck, if that's a bit um, hand-wavy, but hopefully that helped. Saul, honey pie, yeah. Saul wonders, of all the games we play a week, how many are new games um, on their way to a run-through, and how many are ones just like your favorites, like Agricola? Um, He's asking when we play. When, uh, for, how many when, of, them? of all the games we play in an average week, how many are just some of our old favorites versus new ones that we're playing because we have to do a run through? Hmm. I'm going to say 90 to 95 percent are new ones. I'm going to agree with that assessment. All right. We did actually just yesterday get to play an old fave. Yep, but that is a rarity. Um, and that was because the game that you had scheduled had such abysmal rules. <laughs> I just told the guy, "Look, sorry, I can't. You got to go back." Yeah. I'll try again in a month because it was a prototype and the rules were way too rough and ready. I just couldn't make heads or tails of them and drove me nuts. So I said, okay, I was gonna, we were going to play this new game that was going to be working on for a run-through. Oh, that's off the schedule. Hey, Honey Pie, let's just play this. Yep. Let's just, what did we play? We played Signori. Yep. Um, and had a great time. Yeah. So, very, but that's a rare thing. Um, 90% of all the games we play, 95%, it's always the next new thing because we're always moving forward like sharks. Uh, Saul's next question. Have you ever um, burned a game from playing it too much? Have we ever burned out on a game? I would uh, say yes. What? Escape. Escape. That's true. We played a heck of a lot of Escape. Yeah, I was on. But you're saying you you, you got while. sick of it? Yeah, I don't think I enjoy it as much anymore. I mean, that was a don don don. I know. But what was the we, there's just a new So you're one. saying if we sat down and played Escape right now you would not enjoy it because you're burned out on it? No, I don't think so. No, I would enjoy it, but it's not that Do you remember I used to like beg you yeah. to play Escape? Just one more. Yeah, but that was I mean that was that was an unhealthy obsession you had with Escape. Okay, I did call And it I would escape say you crap. have now view it with the same level of interest as a normal game. Yeah, true. You were you were literally addicted to that game. Yeah. And I wouldn't say you've gotten burned out on it. It's just now a normal <laughs> game to you. It's become normal. Yeah. Yeah, well, fine. But how many games do I have that reaction to? There's uh, Ra- Roll for the uh, Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy, Escape. Probably. Escape. I can't I think, think of another game that you've... And, and maybe... Well, no, but Agricola was a different time. Agricola was before I was doing Rado Runs Through. Agricola was when we owned 30 games. And we would play it every week because... And Pandemic, of course. Especially that first... Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, but... I, you know, if we could, if we could go back to being normals, um, and we stopped getting new games all the time, 
don't know. I mean, I imagine we would we would go through swings. We would go through peaks and valleys. Yeah. We'd play a game a bunch. That's what we used to do. Yeah. We played a game a bunch for a few weeks or a month, and then we put it on the shelf. And hey, yeah, let's revisit it in a year because there's always plenty of other stuff. I think that's what we would be naturally predisposed to if it wasn't for the fact that 95% of our games are for run-throughs. Yeah. If if we ever stop this crazy thing, I imagine that's kind of what we'll revert to. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> it doesn't, okay, it doesn't sound fine. No, no, it's fine. Okay. All righty, that was from Saul. But wait, you didn't answer his question. Only I did. Oh, uh, have I been burned from a game? No, I, I, I fundamentally, I can't. It's impossible for me to burn out on a game uh, because we just are not in a circumstance where we could do it. Okay, but have you had a game like um, Escape or Roll for the Galaxy where you wanted to play it, play it, play it, play it? Maybe uh, Shadowrun Crossfire. Well, but, we, I, but that hasn't changed. I would still like to play it, play it, play it. I'd play it every day if I could. Well, then why don't we? Because we got other games to play. We could, we could start our morning with a nice big bowl of Shadowfire Crossrun. I don't... <laughs> Shadowfire Crossrun? <laughs> yeah. The sequel! I'm that sounds awesome. Shadowfire Crossrun! <laughs> like dark fire ice! <laughs> um, no, I, I, it's just not viable. You have your glass to make. I've got... We've got a... We're, but we'll we're see how it goes. Tired in quotes. No, we're not. We should be. Able I to... am a full-time video game blogger. Vlogger. Vlogger. I am a. I am. That is my job now. Your job. I mean, not full-time. I guess maybe part-time, but it's pretty close to full-time. Yeah, you do spend a lot of time reading manuals. I do spend a lot of time reading. I've, I've got. I'm, well, how many are in my folder right now? I have sixteen manuals I have to read and evaluate right now. They're just sitting, waiting for me to look at to see if I'm gonna, if I'm even gonna say yes, person, send me your game. I will do a run through of it. So no, there's just no time. Time is the fire in which we burn, and we're burning, baby. Remember where we parked the vessel. I'm sorry, what? That was a Star Trek quote. Oh yes, because <laughs> you're a vlogger. I was putting these in. Ah, very good. Sorry. So um, no, I have not burned out on a game as yet. I have not had the chance to. But honestly, I don't think we would. I don't think we would. I think if we were normal people, we would just go through peaks and valleys like normal person. Okay, well, what about Agricola? Because we haven't played Agricola in a long time. Well, yeah, probably over a year, easily, maybe even a year and a half. Yeah, but that used to be our go-to game. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah, but I mean, if we set it up tomorrow, we would have a blast playing it. True. It's not like we're sick of it. Yeah, okay. It's, I mean, I mean, tomorrow, yeah, it's, it, it is what it is. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining because I love playing new games. I love learning new games. Yeah. It's, for me, it's a lot of fun. Yep. I, I know for you, it's somewhat fun. You, you, you enjoy it not as much as me. I mean, I like the new. I, yeah. where I think you would be a little bit more, yeah, let's mix in some of the old with the new. So I'm not complaining, but it, it's just the way it is. Yeah, we got plenty of time for that, though. Honey, John, yes. okay, this is a question for me. John has to ask, have I seen the movie Grandma's Boy? Uh, if not, why? Is it, how does it compare with... This is a ridiculous comedy, Adam Sandler-esque. I think maybe he produced it. He's not in it. About the real story behind what it's like to make video games. Oh. Um, John, I have seen Grandma's Boy. It's a silly comedy. I enjoyed it. It has absolutely nothing to do with the reality of the board game industry. It could not be more more removed from reality. It has absolutely nothing. Quite frankly, any kind of movie about the reality of making video games would be boring as all get out. Nobody would want to watch it. It is not an exciting, interesting, dynamic enterprise. It is a whole bunch of people crunching endlessly 
um, constantly struggling, making compromises, and uh, typing. Typing, typing, typing. And when they're not typing, we're clicking. That's it. That's all we do. And having meetings. Lots and lots of meetings to figure out, right, we can't do X, Y, or Z. How do we solve this problem? It would be not a very fun movie. And Grandma's Boy does not capture the essence of it at all. Okay. Um, Glenn says, uh, he's a fan. Thanks, Glenn. Oh, when I heard your detailed explanation of how to use the map and bits from Pandemic Legacy as an ongoing expansion for a regular pandemic, I was a bit surprised. I believe I've heard you state emphatically that you don't want to play fan-proposed variants, i.e. five tribes and ships, etc., etc. Just curious, is there something different about Pandemic, or Pandemic Legacy more oh, to the point, pandemic that makes Legacy. those fan-proposed variants more agreeable? Did I misunderstand your position? On fan proposed variants. Well, first of all, Pandemic Legacy is in a world all of on its own. So, oops. Oops, sorry, I Somebody just dropped the camera, everybody. Just drop the camera. All right. I'm sorry, could you repeat that, Nepi? Oh, I'm saying Pandemic Legacy is in a league of its own. So, if apart there is here. an exception to be made, it would be for Pandemic Legacy. Yes. I would agree with that. To answer your first question, is there something different about Pandemic Legacy? Yes, there is. Very, very different indeed. Um, Pandemic is, uh, at this point, I would, I, for the longest time, Agricola is my number one game, but, but Pandemic has moved up because there's so much expansion content. And I consider Pandemic Legacy to be an expansion for Pandemic. And I think I talked about that at great length in the last podcast, so I don't need to repeat it now. Long story short, when you buy Pandemic Legacy, it is a game. Once you have finished the scenario or the campaign for Pandemic Legacy, it is now an expansion. Uh, It is an expansion that you customized and built yourself during the play of it. That is what Pandemic Legacy is. That is why it is both a game and an expansion. Amazing! Uh, But anyway, uh, yeah. I am not a fan of... Oh, no, that's not fair. I, I have no problem with fan-proposed variants. Here's, I, I think it's great. My only concern about them is, as a game developer myself, I have a firsthand knowledge of how intertwined gameplay mechanisms are and how seemingly little changes can have huge knock-on consequences and effects that are unpredictable at best. Maybe you don't see for the first four times, but you see on the fifth time, etc., etc. And only true proper testing and testing and focus testing and play testing over and over and over again can work out the kinks. Every game I'm looking at on my shelf has gone through tons and tons and tons of playtesting, and the end result is what went into the box. The simple thing is, I would rather sit down and take solace and comfort in the fact that I am playing the best game this can be. Because it's gone through hundreds, if not thousands of hours of human testing to tweak it and tune it and make it just so. Anytime somebody says, yeah, it's a good game, but this part over here is crap. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to say you need to start with 10 bucks instead of five because otherwise the game is garbage you know, or whatever. Obviously, that's a, that's a ridiculous exaggeration for effect. But you know, it is that you know, people think, no, there's something wrong with the game and I need to fix it. You know what? You've played the game maybe for a half a dozen hours. Compared to the hundreds, if not thousands of hours that it has already gone through, I just 
prefer to trust the thousands of hours of playtesting that has resulted in the rules as they are rather than the maybe dozens of hours that a couple of people have, well, I've played it a couple times and I think this is broken. Here's how I suggest we fix it. And I base that on my personal decades of experience designing games. That chances are, just because you think it's broken, doesn't mean that maybe you just don't understand something because you haven't spent thousands of hours. You haven't spent years developing this thing. And so, while I certainly don't begrudge anybody wanting to say, yeah, let's just start with three more bucks. Um, I, in part because of what we were talking about earlier, we don't have time to experiment. If we had 10 games and that we only played those 10 games over and over again, or even 50 games or 100 games, I think I'd be a little bit more amenable to, hey, let's tweak this. Let's play with it. Um, but we don't have time for that. And I am trusting the designers and the developers to have done the time. And, you know, because i got to move on to the next game. I don't have time to experiment. And honestly, I don't want to. If I paid 30 or 40 or 50 bucks, I paid in large part for all that testing. I'd be throwing that money away to say, well, this is clearly wrong. Let me fix this myself. And, oh, I'll become a tester for it. But I'll pay. I will pay money to be able to test it. No, no, no. I'm not going to do that. So that's my problem. So back to why Pandemic Legacy, because Pandemic Legacy is awesome. And I'm not going to go into spoilers, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in that box. And here's the thing. It works brilliantly. It integrates so nicely with all the other Pandemic stuff, in part because it was designed to. It was from the same designer. All the stuff that went into Legacy, and I'm not going to reel what any of it is, works really well with all the other stuff that came previous. So I don't really view it as a variant, or it's very little much of a variant, but I did it because, as Jen said right up front, Pandemic and Pandemic Legacy are amazing, and they are worth the extra effort. They are worth it to me to spend my playtime playtesting. It is not worth it to me to play spend my playtesting time on... Pretty much any other, very few other games am I willing to do it. It's very, very rare. Pandemic Legacy is one that it was worth it. So that's what it comes down to. Okay. Um, let's see. Casey Honey Pie asks, let's see. I've been a fan for quite a while. This is going to be my first year that I can back you on Kickstarter. I'm wondering if you guys have any plans. Kickstarter plans? Yes. Oh, like what have we? Well, because yeah, because um, well, hey everybody. Yeah. Uh, in case it was a surprise, every year in April we do a Kickstarter thing, and we're going to do it again this April. We, in part, we do it in April because I actually started doing run-throughs in the month of March. So March, April is kind of like mm. the the yearly anniversary. Plus, um, my birthday's in April. Our anniversary is in April. Our dog's birthdays are not really in April, but we treat them in <laughs> April. So April's just a good month for us, and so it just seems like a good time to yeah. do the Kickstarter campaign. So we have been thinking uh, about what we're going to do. You know, nothing's written in stone yet. Yeah. Um, but we got some cool stuff coming. We do have some. Should we talk about them? Well, I think we can give them a little preview, a little sneaky peeky. Okay. I mean, okay. Well, let's see. So, well, last year... Um, I had the good fortune to have all those really cool Rado runs through dice. Uh, kind of things just fell into position. We ended up with them, and we were able to. And those were really, really cool. Those were super cool. Not doing it again, though. Well, yes. Not yeah. So I uh, hope everybody who got those Rado dice enjoyed them. We're moving forward. This year, oh, we, we are. There's a few things. Um, one. Well, here's one thing. 
every previous one we've done up till now, one of the stretch goals, or not stretch goals, one of the backer levels was for people who, I mean, Jen's glass is a big part of it. You know, getting glass markers, the lucky dip thing. That works great. People love it. We love it. We're just going to do that. Nothing's really changing about lucky dips. Yep. But in the past, Jen also had a higher level thing where she would do a custom um, glass piece. You know, yep. I forget what it's like, you know, the $100 level, you get all the voting. All the voting stuff is going to be the same. Nothing's really changing about that. That works. I very much enjoy it. Everybody gets to vote on what games I film every m- month and all that and the top tens and, and, you know, what games we buy and all that. That's all great. But um, Jen didn't want to do the custom thing again this year because while she's enjoyed it yeah. and it's really challenged her and pushed her yeah. and, you know, every time she gets one of those new custom things, um, she's like, oh, wow, I've never even thought of doing something like that. How would I even do that? Yep. And so she really enjoyed it but they gobbled up so much of her time. It's just an incredible. It's just not feasible for her to do that. So she was trying to think of, well, what can I do instead this year that would be kind of cool and special? And then we were talking about how, well, the dice last year were really cool, but we're not going to do that again. And people have asked Jen over the years, can you make glass dice? Yep. And she's like, no, I can't. Not really. Cubes are not something that's going to be very... Yeah, you know, and glass. you got to be careful about the weight and you know, exactly. that they roll correctly. But... I said, you know, we were talking about it again. What is it, Dob? What is it? All right. Apparently, Dob saw somebody walk by out front, and yep. she's warning us of the danger. She doesn't have much of a, of a beagle yowl anymore because she lost her voice due to a kennel cough vaccination, actually. Yes. But that was Dob. That was Dob. So thanks for joining, Dob. Um, what was he <laughs> saying? Oh, right. So we were talking about the dice again, and I, I think it was my idea, wasn't it? Yes. Um, could you do three-sided dice? And I and Jen said, what's a three-sided die? And I showed her picture. She said, oh, my God, I can totally make that. Yeah. And so Jen has done some experiments, and she has come up. We haven't come up with a name for it. I kind of like ogre dice or something like that. But she's got this design for a three-sided die that you can roll that kind of looks like a little ogre. Um, the two pips are its eyes. The three pips are its um, teeth. And the one pip is its tail. Or its nose. Or its nose. I, I think it's got to go tail. Jen's still doing, is it a tail or a nose? Well, she's I'm, been doing a few things. You know what? What? They're going to, each one is going to be unique. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, again, we're not necessarily, but we're, we're they're pretty cool. And um, <laughs> I think they're adorable. If you do them as a tail, because then if you roll, um, you know, they either land heads up and looking at you with their little googly eyes, because that's the two pips, or they kind of like take a face plant, <laughs> which is um, when their tail is sticking straight up in the air, and that's one pip. Yeah. Or um, they, uh, they land on their back and they're like wiggling around with their little legs, because that's when their teeth are up in the air, because their mouth is heads up. And they're adorable. And I don't know if people have much use for a three sided die. Um, we actually just used one today because we had to choose randomly between three stacks. So we, you Use it. Use the ogre die. Yeah. And so we used it and it worked. So they're really cute. So Jen was thinking she can make a bunch of those. Um, we'll see how people like them. Yeah. Um, also, I recently did a run through for Geek Dash Craft dice bags. And they're very, very cool. Jen had bought yep. some. We very much enjoy them. Um, so, I mean, we were talking with the guy. And, you know, we, we, were, we were thinking about doing it with him. And that was going to be pretty cool. I mean, and you, you can see my video. And they're very, very cool. I highly recommend them. Um, but we were, but, you know... It's, it would be a, a lot more tricky to try to coordinate with somebody who's, you know, who's outside, um, you know, making these things and, you know, get, we'd be taking orders and he'd be fulfilling them and stuff like that. But then um, Jen had the idea of her mom. Her mom is an, what do you call it? It's not crochet. It's knitting. Yeah, right. it's crochet. Her mom is an amazing crocheter. Yeah. And she's retired. And, um, you know, so Jen talked to her and said, hey, mom, could you? Could you crochet? Could you knit up some dice bags? And Jen showed her, said, yeah, I could make those in my sleep. Um, (laughs) I could just bang those out. Well, not bang them out. 
Well, I mean, she could crochet them with love. She could crochet every single one of them with love. And so we're thinking, well, let's do that. Let's keep it all in the family. So Jen sourced these like little Rotto runs through emblem, yeah, um, pull stringy things. things and They're whatnot. They're gonna be really cool, right? Yeah. And so we we've ordered some of them, and Jen's mom has started working on making. Um, Rotto runs through dice bags. Yeah. So we're going to have some of those. How many, we don't know. It would probably just be however many people want because uh, it'll be at one of the backer levels. People will be able to get those or the ogre dice or lucky dips. Um, you know, And, of course, we'll be able to do the voting and you know, all the other stuff. But those are the physical things we're thinking about this Beatles. year. These, these Rotto runs through dice bags. Hand knitted with love <laughs> um, by Jen's mother, Except Emily Katie. Crocheted. Crocheted, not... What's the difference between knitting and crochet? It's a different kind of uh, needlework. Okay, Crocheted with Love yeah. by Emily Cady, Jen's mom, with little Rotto runs through emblems on them and stuff yep. like that. Um, Jen's handmade three-sided... Are we going to call them ogre dice? I'm not sure yet. It's mainly ogre three-sided because dice. they're all green, because the Rotto is green. Yeah, yeah. Okay, That's so why. we'll see about that. Um, Meeples! And, and, uh, oh, and... Uh, what? Meeples. Oh, Oh, the other thing. Jen, last year... She, uh, you know, she makes visits back to England every once in a while to work on big glass pieces that you can't do here in Malta. And last year, she made these little um, glass cut glass, or you know, water cut glass meeples. They're in the classic meeple shape, and and, and they were a huge hit at Essen. I mean, you know, yeah. they, they sold like hotcakes. So Jen's going back in when are you going back? April. In April. So she'll actually be gone doing this, and she's going to make some more. And you're actually going to what, make eight colors, I think. Yep. And so those will be a backer level reward too. These cool little glass meeples. You can you can check them out at Jennifer.net, J-E-N-E-F-E-R.net. You can see them. They're really cool. Everybody likes them. So she's going to make a whole bunch more of them. So they'll be available at um, backer levels as well. Um, and you know, and so the the, the handcrafted three side dice, the dice bags. I think that's what we've been thinking about so far. Yep. As, and the meeples. Yeah, and, and what? And the meeples. And the meeples, yeah, yeah, and the meeples. And then just all the regular voting stuff and whatnot. Yep. Anything else? No, I think that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, um, then, there you go, Casey. So, yes, that's coming soon. And then, let's uh, see, Stephen has one, last one, I think. No, no, no. Yeah, Stephen's the next last one. Been anxious to hear your new thoughts about the Agricola that's coming out in 2016 and 2017. Sounds cool. Um, I mean, we love Agricola. I, my understanding is, I mean, people who own a rig, I mean, we don't need to run around and get it because we've got every single thing there is for Agricola under the sun. We've So we've probably got every one of these cards. But I know they're tweaking some of the cards. So I think that's great that there's like a whole new um, entry level for Agricola and they're doing that other version of Agricola that's kind of like a gateway Agricola that comes without the cards. And I, it all sounds very, very smart. And I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there are going to be upgrade packs. So for folks like us who already have a Griffo, we can get the new one. So we'll definitely try to get those. And I'll probably do a run-through of them and talk about the differences. So I think that's awesome. I'm very excited. More Agricola is a good thing. And um, Eves is back, Honey Pie. Ooh. If we're saying um, the name correctly, Eves? That's what I think it is. Okay, Eves asks, I have another question for you. I strongly feel the Spiel des Jahres should add a new category from this year on. What do you think about... And Eves did not finish. Eves, what do we think about what? <laughs> um, oh wait, oh, there's a there's a there's a uh, attachment. It's a bitmap. Hold on. Ah, okay. What do you think about? And I'm supposed to look at the attachment. There's the Spiel des Jahres, the Kenner Spiel des Jahres, and the Erweitung des Jahres. You know what Erweitung is, honey pie? Hmm. That, you know, reach back into that high school German. 
Uh, it's not a word you ever would have come across. I can't. I only know it because I've heard it so many times. Okay. Everybody, it's an expansion. I believe oh. Ervaitun is. Let me double check that. I could be wrong. It's not like I'm a. Yeah, I don't think Ervaitun was big into expansions back in no, no. high school German. Uh, translate. I'm pretty sure Ervaitun is. Yeah, it's an expansion. Expansion of the year. So Eve's asked, should there be. Now, you don't even know what Spiel Charge is, I'm sure. Well, it's an award given to the game of the year. It is the most prestigious award there is. Is it? Well, it's interesting. It's a, it's an award that's uh, put out in Germany because, you know, board games are a much bigger cultural phenomenon in Germany than they are. Um, they're huge in Greece. They're huge in a lot of countries, but they're much bigger in, in these European countries than they are in America. And so it's actually an award that has a lot of weight. If you get the Spiel des Jahres of the year, you're going to go from selling 5,000 units to 25,000 units to 50,000 units. Nice. It really catapults. It's, it has a huge, huge impact. And they have two, they only have two awards. The uh, Spiel des Jahres, the game of the year, and the Kenner Spiel, which is like the For Connoisseur's kids? Game of the Year or something like that. Ken, Kenner, Kenan, Kenan is Kinder. knowledge is is smart, right? I thought it was Kinder, K I N. No, no, not Kinder. That's children's. Oh, that's right. They do have a. They have. A, they have. A, they have. They have three. I forgot about that. They have one for kids, which is not called the Kinderspiel, or maybe it is the Kinderspiel, but they have the Kennerspiel. Okay. Which is, and I believe Kenst is yes, like to it know. Is. I just my brain heard you no. say Kinder. No, yeah, yeah. So they have the kids one, which we don't really care about. They got the regular one, and then they've got the Kinderspiel, which is like the more advanced one. And so she's suggesting another one, the expansion of the year. The problem with an expansion of the year, literally just thinking off the top of my head, is I think that's kind of counter to the entire point of the Spiel des Jahres. Everything about the Spiel des Jahres is those awards are to get people who don't know anything about board games to play board games. They are for fam- they're all family. The the Spiel des Jahres, everybody always is up in arms because why isn't this incredible game? The Spiel des Jahres, it was clearly the best game of the year. Yeah, but it wasn't a great gateway game. Spiel des Jahres isn't going to be Spiel des Jahres if it's not a great family-style gateway game that anybody can play with children of any age, stuff like that. So it's not the, the best game of the year. It's the best gateway game of the year? No, well, it's called the game of the year. The Spiel des Jahres, the yeah. game of the year. But functionally... It is the best gateway game of the year because that is what they are interested in as an award-giving ceremony. Okay. They are trying to recognize and reward games that convert people to play the hobby. So they're games that anybody is going to enjoy. And then the Kenner Spiel, a lot of people are like, hey, this is supposed to be the hardcore. This is for gamers game. And everybody's like, oh, they're so light. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, because those are also supposed to be, they're just barely gateway plus games. <laughs> they're games for, oh, did you enjoy the this gateway game? Maybe next you'd like to try this gateway plus game. So... The, um, you know, even their heavy games are incredibly like games. I don't think an expansion of the year fits within their remit because it would have to be, hey, here's something you can buy if you already own the base game. And they are interested yeah. in just introducing more people to base games. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, they're not trying to, I mean, some, an expansion of the year is for hardcore board game geeks who are like, oh, yeah, okay, we've, of course we have all the games, but which expansion should we get? That's not. That's just not what. That's just not the perspective of the Spiel des Jahres. So I. I don't think it makes. I don't think it would make sense for them as an organization. In all honesty, I think there probably could be other stuff they could do. But again, I mean, what they do, the three things they do: the kids' game of the year, the the game of the year, which is really family game of the year, and then the Kenner Spiel or family plus game of the year. That's all they care about. Mm. I mean, I would love to see them say, okay, now let's do a hardcore game of the year where you'd really, you'd start seeing Steffen Feld games showing up or heavier games, um, you know, the plus plus, but it's just not in their remit. And so I, don't, I don't think it's a problem that they don't do that. So I don't see how expansion of the year would really make sense for them. But still, 
Thanks for asking, Eves. And that's it, folks. Another Q&A done and dusted. Oh, unbroken. We didn't even break for station identification. <laughs> and an hour, 42 minutes. Right. And I think I threw the remote. Oh, here it is. Okay. Oh, sorry for any sloppiness, folks. We just kept going. I know I was, Jen was worried about my mic scratching my, because we're just sitting here on the couch, just yep. relaxing. Jen's been knitting this whole time. And, uh, oh, but we're almost done. So bear with us, folks. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, we're in the home stretch now. Just stick with me a little bit more, and we'll get you back to your day-to-day shortly. Last topic is a follow-up to my recent top 10 Kickstarter games. And actually, I have to admit, I was very, very surprised. I expected there to be a lot more kickback to my Kickstarter thoughts. Um, Maybe it's because... For whatever reason, nobody posted my video on Reddit. I noticed that's where I tend to get the most mm, uh, controversial con- controversy. It tends to pop up more there. It tends to be more heated comments. Uh, I, I find there even more so than in my YouTube comment section, which I have to admit is really nice. I don't get a lot of the YouTube bile that so many people get. I'm always happy to see that. And um, anyway, so there were a lot of people saying, what about game X, Y, and Z? Uh, paperback, a lot of people asked about. Uh, the various games of Ryan Lockett, Red Raven Games, um, games from Artipia. And you know, time after time, for every single one of those, it was just a case where I made a admittedly arbitrary line in the sand. If that particular publisher had professionally published something before, it didn't make the list. Paperback would have totally made the list if Walkstar hadn't already been through two pr- publishing print runs prior to that. And uh, you know, and that was pretty much the case for almost everything people suggested. But what about X, Y, and Z? Uh, they would have been strong contenders. It's just that I had my, ta- sorry, noobs only, because that was kind of the entire thematic point of the top ten I was doing. And really, I think about the only pushback that I got where a couple of people did point out that maybe it was an oversight on my part. And I'll agree. I'll cop to it was an oversight on my part to not talk much about the inherent risk in Kickstarter. Because, of course, there are a very tiny, tiny handful of projects that have failed to deliver over the years. And I know, you know, people, you know, who make a habit of following trends in Kickstarter might say, what are you talking about, very tiny? There's a dozen of them. Yeah, that's a dozen out of thousands, literally thousands of successfully kickstarted projects, board game projects. Yeah, a couple dozen maybe went bad. That's really a pretty minuscule drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yes, it is certainly true that caveat emptor, buyer beware, is the watchword of the day when you are considering a Kickstarter project. But, you know, I don't know that that's on Kickstarter. I don't know that that's on the publishers of Kickstarter. That is on the, uh, the consumer. Look to see who is behind it. Look at what else they've done in the past. If they haven't done anything else in the past, look how engaged they are with the... Um, with the backers they've got so far. If you have questions, ask them. Try to get a a straight accounting of how they feel with their very first published game that they've got all their ducks in a row. Who did they talk to? Who do they have lined up? If they don't answer the question, 
don't back them. It's really very simple. It's a great equalizer. I mean, I th it's another wonderful thing to me that Kickstarter basically rips down the barrier between um, produ producer and consumer because, you know, everybody's just... You know, in the uh, the Kickstarter discussion page, saying, "Hey, what about X or Y or Z?" And the publisher is there talking about it. And you know what? If the publisher has a bad track record, don't back it. Wait for it to go into you know the retail channel. If you're worried about that, I think it's a shame because, of course, the more people back when it's on Kickstarter, the better the ultimate game will be. That's the most beautiful thing about Kickstarter. When you look at a game like. Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is, you know, a, a pretty straightforward Euro-y style game, moving, you know, pandemic-inspired cooperative game. It has these incredibly gorgeous, lush little wooden pieces. So much better than what you see in literally 95% of all other Euros. How does it have those pieces? Because it was on Kickstarter, and enough people were able to back it up front that they could publish it in a way that, you know, was it Minion Games? Was it Minion Games? I think it was their game. Would never Never in a million years be able to publish with such lush, wonderful pieces if they didn't have the money up front. Kickstarter allows for that. That game's overall production was improved immeasurably. Yes, they could, they're a big enough publisher, they could have put it out without that, but the stretch goals made such a big deal, and that is because of what Kickstarter allows. It's just great. I'm still, uh, and I think more than anything else, I was just so pleasantly surprised that I didn't get what I expected, which was a, a cavalcade of negativity, because you see so much of that. Just every time one project out of a hundred goes bad, so 99% success rate, one out of a hundred goes bad, or whatever the ultimate number is, it's a ridiculously small number, and you get everybody coming out of the woodwork saying, see, I told you, Kickstarter is the devil, this never happens with commercial releases, of course it happens with commercial releases. Releases. You just never know about it because the delays, the issues, the surprises, all that stuff that comes up is all invisible. If it's on Kickstarter and you back it, you are becoming part of the production, which means you have to wait. You know, if you don't like it, don't back, but it's a shame because to me, it's exciting to feel like you're part of something, that you are actually contributing something, that you are making something that you will potentially love better than it ever might have otherwise been. So really, all I'm doing is just continuing to rave about how awesome Kickstarter is. Um, one person actually did point out that they were concerned and I, I understand the point that Kickstarter has the potential to ruin retail board game establishments. What happens to the friendly local game stores? What happens to the online retailers? Because surely, you know, the the fifteen hundred, the two thousand people who, are, the five thousand people who ever back it, that's it. That you know, that's all the games ever going to sell, and it's just going to be a pittance when it gets out to retail stores. Personally, I do not believe that to be the case at all. It's already very well established that, and I actually, we talked about this earlier in this very podcast, that retail brick and mortar stores, the sales of games there, significantly dwarf the sales of online. And I suspect that is true for Kickstarter because, yeah, whether you like it or not, yes, it is true. Functionally, Kickstarter is just another shop. It's another place where you can give money in ex you can give money in exchange for goods and services. It's a slightly different business model than is this the norm. You know, different timing of all the different steps, but it doesn't change the fact that you're paying money with an expectation of product in the end. And in that regard, it's just another online store. You could buy it from Cool Stuff Inc. 
six months later, or you could buy it from Kickstarter right now. Your choice. And honestly, I tend to think of Kickstarter, I think what it's becoming something akin to the model that we saw from Hollywood for decades of movies. Movies, you want to you wanna get in early? Go see it in the theater. But you know what? Once home video became, I mean, and, and for the longest time, there was um, go see it in the theater or watch it on TV, watch it on Sunday night on ABC when it eventually gets edited down and they add commercials. And then eventually, hey, home video, buy it on, rent it on tape. And eventually DVD and eventually Blu-ray. So you have these different channels to get the same thing. And there's always these big time differentials between them. To me, Kickstarter is no different. Back it now, pay your money now, when you can make a really huge difference, a monster difference. And, and that's true for um, you know, people going to the theater. The more people go to a movie theater, the higher the production values of feature films will be. The same thing is true here. The more people back it on Kickstarter, the better the ultimate game will be. It's just pretty much almost guaranteed to be the case. But don't worry if you don't do it, because still, the lion's share of people are ultimately going to get it through other means. The majority of people watch movies in their homes these days. The majority of board gamers still buy board games, not through Kickstarter, but through um, you know online retail or even more so direct sale. I'm not geeks. Geeks buy most of their stuff online. But regular people, and there's, again, as I said earlier, there's a lot more regular people than there are geeks, buy them in stores. So they get them in the store. That is still the ultimate dream. That is the goal because that is where the most sales could potentially happen. So I don't know. I mean, I guess in time, maybe Kickstarter will completely subvert and destroy the old model. And you know what? It's no different. Direct stream to your home with big screen TVs or projection TVs is ultimately going to destroy the traditional movie cinema going experience as well. I guess I'll be sad that I can't go to see at, you know, a hundred years from now. I won't be able to necessarily see movies on hundred foot screens anymore. But man, um, what I get, what I gave up there is so made up for the for the convenience factor of being able to watch stuff at home in first run. And yeah, maybe board game retailers will go the way of the Dodo in 20 or 30 years. And yo, know, that's too bad. But if the quality of the games increases... I mean, I, I, I know board game retailers. I mean, I, mean, I, I mentioned Board Game Guru. They're, he's a wonderful guy, provides a wonderful service. I hope he continues to do gangbusters business because it's wonderful what's happening there. But, you know, markets change, and that's the nature of it. And, you know, I would hope that he finds something else to do if, if worst-case scenario, Kickstarter replaces all other forms of commerce. Now, the reality is, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think the reality is, before that ever happens, we'll get to a basic income economy where all bets are out the window as to the way things are going to work. You know, in, in 500 years, no one's going to pay any money for anything. Everybody's going to pay everything with Facebook likes. That's our future. But, um, you know, that's way... Way, 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 way in the far distance. That's our Star Trek future. For now, I am not too terribly worried about Kickstarter. To me, it's all upside. It's all gravy. And that's it, folks. Like I said, not really that much to say. Um, and so, we're going to cut it here. I'm going to say thanks for listening. 
March is going to be a very, very interesting month. I'm going to be on the road for two weeks, heading out to Florida to hang out with the Dice Tower guys, play some live gaming sessions, maybe do some other stuff. I'll be covering Gamma, the trade show in Las Vegas. That's crazy that that's happening. I never would have thought that was going to happen. And um, as always, I'll be bringing out a whole bunch more game run-throughs. I hope you enjoy it. And Jen and I will be back in roughly, give or take 30 days time for episode 11. So, talk to you everybody. So long. Bye-bye.